Ladies and gentlemen, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. The Hagman Report, HagmanReport.com. That's our that's our location on the internet, and of course, follow us on social networking. Hagman PI, that's me, and of course, Hagman Report, that's uh, Hagman Report or Hagman PI on Twitter is me. Hagman Report is for the show. Joe's got his own. Eric the Tech's got his own. John's got his own. But we're coming at this. We're coming at the problem. Uh, full steam ahead, and what we're doing is we're striking individually and collectively. This is what we need to do. We need to stick together. We need to strike out, and we need to keep uh, keep on striking. Am I feeling great today? Yesterday, I had a, 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 just a. I don't know how many people get migraines, but I'll tell you something. That was it, that that was a, a, a eyeball dropping. You know, holy moly, kind of a situation. But man, once uh, once that leaves you. And Steve Quill gets them too. And, uh, we, we've, <laughs> there have been times when we both would talk, um, he's got an ice bag on his head and I'm like, uh, twisted in, in a, in a pretzel trying to get, uh, uh, I, you know, I can't lay down and, and he can't sit up. It's just really, Steve and I have got some, you know, we've got some, uh, we share some misery. Uh, haven't passed those on to Joe yet. But I want to thank every, each and every one of you for joining us. Thanks for so much for your belief and your trust in us as we walk through uh, this this real minefield together. Here's what's important, what we all should be looking at right now. Uh, you know, as this Russian narrative gets dialed down, and it is getting dialed down by the force of the impetus of, really by the force of the new media, by the independent media, People who are speaking out on channels like this and saying there's nothing to it. And of course, a big part of this Russian narrative is the lack of the, or the, uh, leak versus the hack. And of course, this is where Seth Rich homicide comes in and all of that. But, uh, some things that we should be taking a look at right now. James Comey, did he violate the Records Act, which is a, which is a felony? I do believe that there's enough um, prima facie evidence to suggest yes. We need to be looking at that. Loretta Lynch, what, uh, uh, what did she do? Did she perhaps obstruct justice with respect to the email investigation of Hillary Diane Rodham, the witch Clinton? The email scandal was turned into an investigation which ultimately became a matter, of course. Speaking about Hillary, we have many of her own Russian connections. Isn't that funny how Hillary or how the progressive left projects and Hillary, uh, front and center in Uranium One. The first time I heard about Uranium One was from Dave Hodges. And of course, Uranium One, big deal there. How Russia had taken over essentially our uranium production. What about Obama? If, in fact, he knew, he suspected of Russian collusion in our electoral process, election process, if that was the case, if that was the case, 
He knew about this in August of 2016. What did he do? Zero. Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn was unmasked by who? We know that there were, really, the people that did the unmasking, which is a big deal, by the way. Who did the unmasking? Well, we've got the unmasking by Loretta Lynch, very infamous for the tarmac incident of uh, June 2016. You've got Mr. Brennan, John Brennan, former CIA head and uh, honorary Muslim, right? You've got Loretta Lynch, and you've got uh, Susan Rice as well in this mix. So you've got a number of people who are in this mix of uh, possibilities. And, of course, Comey as well. But uh, Loretta Lynch, I would say, front and center. What about uh, uh, Mueller's BFF, that being James Comey? What do we see there? Is there there a problem with Mueller being the independent counsel? Remember, this is not a special prosecutor. This is an independent counsel. The special prosecutor law expired. Independent uh, counsel law takes effect. Uh, Mueller, there's an issue there as well with his BFF being Comey. And, of course, uh, you have the relationship between the Clintons. I mean, the Clintons are like this bad odor. Uh, I, you know, I don't remember Joe. Come on in. I don't remember who said this, but I laughed. I laughed. I, I don't know whether it was Sean Hannity who said this, or uh, I don't remember who who it was. And again, this was because of my migraine-induced haze yesterday. I was trying to keep up with things. So, somebody had said, and, and that Hillary Clinton's like Pigpen, the cartoon character Pigpen. You're familiar no. with that, right? No, I'm not. Okay, I, mean, I know what you're talking about, but I haven't heard Charlie, that thing before. The Charlie Brown um, character Pigpen depicted in the cartoons walking around, and everywhere Pigpen goes, there's this cloud of dirty odor around oh, him. Oh, yeah, okay. okay. Depicted in the cartoon that way. Now again, this is not me saying this, and I don't, and I apologize for not recalling who, if it was a guest on Sean Hannity's program or Sean Hannity. Uh, I'm trying to remember who I, 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 or maybe it was, was it Mark Levin or was it? Uh, it was one of it was one of the uh, uh, conservative talk show hosts. But I thought, first of all, I laughed, and second of all, I thought how true that is when you look at her, because when you look at. Uh, Mueller, you look at Comey, you look at all of these, Obama, who's, who, who keeps popping in? It, it's, it's Hillary Clinton at the epicenter. And I know we are all waiting for the day. We are all waiting for the day that Hillary Clinton does get her day in court. I believe that she deserves a day in court. That's what we're waiting for. And of course, you're talking, uh, along with, uh, with Hillary. You've got Huma Abedin. You've got, uh, uh, you've got Anthony Weiner, his own problems. You've got the server, the, the mishandling of the classified information. You've got Comey. You got, you got uh, all of this. And Susan yet, Rice. Uh, Susan Rice, yes. There's, uh, reports out today that 
Susan Rice going to be uh, testifying. Has agreed to testify before the House Intelligence Committee. Only thing is, it is behind closed doors. The yes. testimony will be in private as part of the panel's investigation into Russian meddling into yes. the election. According to CNN, Rice will attend the closed session sometime before Congr- Congress's August recess, uh, which is interesting. And I, I don't know why they decided to do it privately. Maybe it's because of the, the nature of, of um, talking about the processes of, of masking and unmasking information, how the information is collected. Maybe that's why it's private. Well, uh, Because it, the methods of, of the national... Uh, intelligence gathering mechanisms could be revealed, uh, but I wish it wasn't private. Obviously, I think we all. Want I, to I see think it. The, I think I think America has got the right. All Americans have the right to sit in as to, to hear this testimony, or at least edit or, the parts that are sensitive and put the rest out. That's right, and, and and perhaps that'll be a number of other things. I'm going to kick it to you. We've got uh, news that the House passes Kate's law as part of an illegal immigration crackdown. Today, House Republicans uh, took to the uh, voting floor and passed what is now known as Kate's Law. Uh, you remember uh, Kate Steinle, San Francisco woman, killed by an illegal immigrant who was in the United States despite... Was despite she the who was yeah, she, uh, killed on the boardwalk in front she, of her family she was, while she was live on TV? Uh, I think not, so. Okay, but, but yeah, Kate Steinle... Uh, she was killed by an illegal, uh, illegal alien in this country despite multiple deportations. The two year anniversary of her, of her death is on Saturday. President Trump today called the bill's passage good news in a tweet adding that the House passed, uh, just passed, uh, hashtag Kate's Law. Hopefully the Senate will soon follow. This is interesting, I thought, when I, when I said, when I saw this. The uh, Kate's Law, which would increase penalties for deported aliens who try to get back into the country and caught, that's an important part of the equation, passed with a vote of 257 to 157, with one Republican voting no and 24 Democrats voting yes. Who was a Republican voting no? It was Amash. There was also a, uh, a bill that kind of went with that, uh, the, uh, bill that, uh, no sang, uh, it was a second measure, no sanctuary for criminals act. That, of course, would cut federal grants to states and sanctuary cities that refuse to cooperate with law enforcement, carrying out immigration, ref- immigration enforcement activities. Yay and yay. Um, Steinle, just to go back, the, the brutal murder was, was uh, catapulted, uh, that it actually catapulted the issue of, of criminal aliens into the national spotlight. Now, just to be clear, this alleged shooter, Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez, had been deported five times and they had seven felony convictions, yet is embraced by the by the people of San Francisco. Come on! Yeah. But the other bill, which would deny federal grants to sanctuary cities, passed with a vote of 228 to 195, three Democrats voting yes, Seven Republicans voting no. Huh. Why would you do that? Some other news. German court. Sharia police may patrol the streets. Court in Germany authorizes group of self-appointed Sharia police to continue enforcing Islamic law in the city of Wuppertal. Warp, uh, yeah. Whoop. Wuppertal. Wuppertal. W-U-P-P-E-R-T-A-L. Yeah, 
And isn't that interesting? Of course, the no-go zones, oh, that's all fiction. Sharia law, it's all fiction. It's over there. It's only over there. Folks, it's coming here. We have on the Hagman Report, the YouTube site. Please, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, we have Leslie Ann Stoffel. You remember her? We have a segment there. Spread that around. Share that around. She talks about what's going, what's going on in Canada with respect to Sharia law and, and this Islamic issue. One last thing and then I'm going to turn it over to Joe. Former Hillary Rodham Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta. Yeah, he pitched a hissy fit when Fox business host, uh, Maria Bartiroma highlighted his own ties with companies connected to Russia. She asked why Americans weren't paying more attention to Democratic ties to the Russians. And here's what he said, and I'm going to quote him. Yeah, you're picking through my emails that were stolen by the Russians and released by WikiLeaks and creating a story that's just not true. (laughs) Insisting, insisting he did not get any shares from a Russian company. Okay. Podesta sat on the board of Juul, an American company that attracted investments from the Russians, Breitbart News senior editor-at-large Peter Schweitzer had reported the company received $35 million from a Putin-connected Russian government fund while the Secretary of State at that time, Hillary Diane Rodham Clinton, was working in the Obama administration. Huh. Hillary Clinton's Secretary of State, Bubba Bill, goes to Russia, makes speeches, gets double and triple the amount that he used to get. Hmm. During this interview, Podesta tried in vain to distance himself from the Russian connections. There you have it. So old uh, Skippy pitched a hissy fit there. So with that, uh, these are some of the things that we're looking at. And, of course, the death, the death knell of the mainstream media, specifically CNN, as Project Veritas moves forward uh, in showing some of these videos. And one last thing about this. When people say that they're these are edited, selectively edited videos, you know something? I've been to court, uh, 30 years investigator, I've been to court, I don't know, hundreds, hundreds uh, oodles of times. I've shown videotape in a court setting, whether it's federal, state, local, municipal, jury, non-jury trial. And let me tell you something. There's no jury, no court that's going to sit through unedited versions of surveillance videotape. None. What happens is you you authenticate the original, you select the relevant portions, you show it to the jury. That's exactly what Project Veritas does. And anyone who is claiming that they're selectively edited is deflecting from the issue of the content. Folks, this is happening understand why the reason is they cannot fight this on the facts that's a big deal and kudos to project veritas and as well as people like and organizations like the center for medical progress and to 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 the people out there who believe that center for medical progress uh, shouldn't have done what they did under cover operation how dare they well i'll tell you something anything that would in this case that would save the lives of unborn, the unborn, to me, uh, is just absolutely fine. In this case, there is there is nothing that the Center for Medical Progress did, in my view, uh, regardless of the 
supposed violation of the wiretapping law, meaning to say uh, either a one-party or all-party all consent state that would even remotely justify the tossing out of the uh, evidence found here at this point. You know, if, if, if someone sees a murder or is involved in a murder or uh, or not involved, but sees a murder taking place and records it or st- attempts to stop it, or if they've got to break into a house to stop it, uh, well, I'll just use this analogy. Somebody, somebody's seeing a murder take place. It's not in their house. They have to break into a property to stop the murder, and they do that. You think that the police are going to arrest the person for breaking into the property? The people who are complaining about the Center for Medical Progress and their tactics or it would be the same people that would say, gee whiz, he broke the law by breaking into the property. How dare him? He should. He's a criminal. He's the criminal here. And yet you've got self-appointed Christians south of the Mason-Dixon line so far south. They could fall in the Gulf of Mexico as they walk through their pebbled uh, little gardens as they knit their as they crochet their little uh, uh, afghans or whatever that they might do being so self-righteous that they could you know it, it, the bottom line is this we're, we're, in, we're in a war we need we need to fight and we need to give it all we need to give it our all joe go ahead sir take it away all right well let's uh what do we got we got about six seven minutes before the break here Got a number of things we want to get into. You're talking about San Francisco. I don't know how many people saw this. San Francisco to pay a legal $190,000 because he was de- de- reported and detained. Sanctuary cities may be, may also be uh, settlement cities for uh, illegals. To settle a lawsuit, San Francisco is set to pay almost $200,000 to an illegal immigrant who says his undocumented status was reported to ICE officers contrary to the protection that the sanctuary city offers to illegals. The local San Francisco CBS affiliate KPIX5 reports that the settlement is pending but is expected to be officially announced in the near future, and the city is just fine with that. Long story short, this guy had his car stolen. He, uh, It was recovered. He went to the police station to claim it, and when he walked out of the police station, ICE officers arrested him because he is an illegal uh, immigrant. And due to the sanctuary city policy, him and his lawyers put together a lawsuit, and the city is settling for $190,000, even though this guy broke the law. But it happened in a sanctuary city, so now they're uh, debating on whether or not this is going to become um, some kind of regular thing where they have protection for the illegals in these sanctuary cities. And then if somebody gets picked for being illegal in these sanctuary cities, do they have the legal recourse to sue that city? That's a very really? dangerous precedent. Really? And Cut off the we funding. Need to, I'm going to tell I mean, you something. It's taxpayer money. It's like a... <laughs> I, would, if, if, I would not live in a sanctuary city, but if I did, I certainly wouldn't pay my taxes. No. You enforce Gosh, the no. law. We live in a constitutional Republic. We are part of the United States of America. These these cities are not autonomous to the Constitution. You follow the laws of the land. These mayors like Rahm Emanuel, these uh, legislators like uh, Diane Feinstein, or uh, yeah, Diane Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi. They're Nancy. all crazy. 
Okay. Literally crazy. You you Did know you what? See what you that take, Maxine you Waters said today? No, I, I oh, due gosh, to the, no. the the Trump care bill, seven hundred billion people will be without care. Wait a minute, how many? Seven hundred billion people. Okay, well, let me write that down. Uh, without without seven hundred billion, billion people, will that's be without a lot care. of people. It is now. When 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 might we reach that level of population? <laughs> what year? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I was it's, just reading it. Isn't she the same one that uh, said the James Ramwick? The, the, well, the, didn't she say the island would tip over if there? No, 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 no. That, that wasn't was, him. Uh, or that wasn't her. No. All right, all right. Just curious. These people, we've elected these people, and the honorable, the honorable. Yeah. Okay. Honorable. Uh, my butt, honorable. You know, get out of town. Um, I, I'm going to tell you, well, there's nothing honorable about these people. Just a couple of uh, stories here. I want to get into with the the news media. There's been some uh, interesting developments between. A number of people in the, in the news and Donald Trump. There was some back and forth today between Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski and Donald Trump. A lot of people are, are saying, you know, what is Trump thinking? Tweeting out to Mika Brzezinski about her face bleeding from a facelift when she was at Mar-a-Lago. Well, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski have been calling <laughs> Trump names, have been lying about him, have been saying he's mentally unstable. Call oh, yeah. him a psych, uh, you know, a, yeah. a, a scumbag. I mean, every single day. So today he he put out a tweet, which a lot of people hey, Scarborough, issue with. Lori Klazudis, two words, Lori Klazudis. Yeah, the dead intern from dead his intern. office Gone. when he was a Republican Gone. in Florida. But a lot of people have taken issue with Trump in uh, putting out these tweets about Mika Brzezinski. Personally, I have no problem with it. Uh, you know, the guy's not a politician, and he's been doing a lot. As president in only what 170, 180 days he's been there. He's done more than uh, most presidents do in their whole terms, at least in terms of trying to restore constitutional government. So if he wants to spend some of his free times in the morning tweeting, making fun of reporters who do nothing but spend their whole show calling him names and, and making up allegations and lies about him, then you know more power to him. I don't care. But but interestingly, um, there's been since the release of the CNN tapes where. Uh, one of the CNN producers said the Russia story is, you know, BS. It's made up. It's for ratings. Van Jones called it a nothing burger. And then today, uh, the owner of CNN, Jeff Zucker, actually uh, created a distraction and ran from yeah, James O'Keefe from Project Veritas as to not have to answer his question. Every morning, seven o'clock, uh, yeah. Zucker comes out. Seven o'clock every morning, bang, bang, bang. O'Keefe shows up, and uh, right at eight o'clock, they sweat, try to sweat O'Keefe out. Eight o'clock, a uh, guy comes out. Uh, bodyguard and kind of confronts O'Keefe. Meanwhile, Zucker scurries yeah, like a little, little little snowflake into his into his uh, SUV, gas guzzling SUV. Yeah. Right. Well, there's uh, the media is is calling Trump dangerous again. Uh, Wednesday on CNN's The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, uh, Wolf asked the White House Correspondents Association President Jeff Mason. If he had discussed the potentially very dangerous issue of President Donald Trump calling the media enemies of the American people with the White House communications team. Blitzer said, hold on, I want to get Jeff Mason back in this conversation. You're the president of the White House Correspondents Association. You've met with Sean Spicer, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House team. Have you raised concerns, uh, concern all of us in the news media have about this president calling us enemies of the American people? Because that is a very, very harsh statement and a very potentially dangerous uh, statement to make. This is Wolf Blitzer talking about Donald Trump calling them the enemies of the people. And, I mean, all we have to do is just look at 
it, it's crazy to me that the media is so appalled when they're when they're called the enemy of the people. They are the enemy of the people. The mainstream media is, and it's not potentially dangerous for Trump to call them the enemy of the people. I think it's what they believe. It's potentially dangerous that the rest of the public finds out that they actually are the enemy of the people. And also CNN uh, today, uh, they went on another tirade calling, uh, saying that Donald Trump calling the media fake news is Orwellian and sinister and that Trump is causing the fake news. Um, this one is from uh, Newsbusters. CNN continues to whine that President Trump's attacks on the media are a threat to democracy itself. Clearly, the media, especially CNN, does not take criticism well. Uh, we had Jim Acosta freaking out about, you know, having no cameras on in the press briefing. And, you know, they continue to call the, the president names and uh, blame him for their for their own lies and uh, hysteria. But what's really interesting is all these journalists or so-called journalists, these you know, CIA-paid teleprompt readers, sit here and make up stories and push lies about uh, the president and his agenda day after day after day after day. They make it up out of whole cloth intentionally to hurt not only Trump and his credibility, but the, the credibility and the agenda of the office of the president. And they do it all for ratings. It's all all been admitted that Trump is good for business. And then when he calls them out for what they truly are, they say it's very dangerous for him to do that. The media has been actively working uh, to overthrow the president, fomenting violence, calling for violence, you know, justifying the violence. And um, they have been doing nothing but making up stuff about the Trump-Russia connection on and on and on and on and on. There is no greater enemy to the American people inside this country than the, the media and the people who control it, that being the you know the psychological warfare uh, parts of the, the government, the, the people who are um, you know manipulating and brainwashing the people with this uh, you know communist totalitarian ideology that it's some sort of utopia that can be formed by their you know progress of, of love, loving Trump's hate. But Loving the media hate Trump is right, going to continue right. to self-destruct as long as Trump's in office. And let's help. He's it. doing a great job of trolling them. And I know some people, even Trump supporters, are a little bit uncomfortable and weary about his tweeting. Personally, who cares? Let it go. Who cares? Let it go. These people have been doing nothing but, again, you know, just verbally assassinating the president with lies and name calling and smears for almost over a year now. And when he pushes back a little bit, people are getting upset. When he calls them the enemy of the people, they're going to say that's dangerous. Yeah. They just are upset that they're being shown for what they really are. Folks, we'll be right back after this. Don't go anywhere. Visit HagmerReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. In a thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. 
T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. Kirkus Review states, Readers of End Times Fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast-paced. Blue Wink Reviews boldly states, Fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series from Amazon.com. Book 1, Precipice. Book 2, Pentecost. And Book 3, Penance. In these uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel-burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass-burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, trial abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. Exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in this community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. back folks to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report uh, HagmanReport.com that's our website hey, bookmark that also follow us on our social networking platforms as well subscribe to YouTube to our YouTube channel we, we go live every weeknight it's Monday through Friday 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time on the Global Star Radio Network we're also backed up by BTR Blog Talk Radio as well of course as uh, YouTube Live Global Star YouTube, BTR, take your pick. Right now we've got a fantastic uh, guest, a writer who I've been reading for some time. I absolutely just, I think his work is incredible. Um, he, he writes for a number of publications. American Thinker is where I really saw his, his, I saw him, his last article appeared in American Thinker. And of course, folks, you know, Peter Barry Chowka, um, from American Thinker, right as a writer for American Thinker, we've we've had him on and and just love his work as well. Well, James Simpson, he is an author, 
work is published at the American Thinker, as well as, uh, I believe, Capital Research. Uh, he's an economist. He's a businessman. He's an investigative journalist. He's got a book out, fantastic book, short to the point, important information. It's called uh, The Red-Green Access, Refugees, Immigration, and the Agenda to Erase America. You can follow Jim, as I will, here right after the program, on Twitter and Facebook. Jim Sim- James Simpson, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Mr. Hagman. Love to thank you for having me on. Man, I'll tell you, you uh, starting out because Mr. Simpson has written numerous articles. Uh, starting out, the one article that just got my attention was the last one written at the American Thinker about. Uh, I just I just froze up and I usually print these out about the. Uh, uh, come on now. What was yeah, the evangelical. Uh, That's it. What, it yeah, man who's uh, been uh, you know, partnering with a radical jihadist uh, imam to talk about uh, the differences and similarities between Christianity and uh, Islam. You know, Mr. Simpson, what is going on here? If if I can ask you in the larger sense, uh, you've got the you've got the Islamists coming in in droves. Christians, not so much, you know, a, tenth, a fraction of a percent. You've got this lack of uh, assimilation. You've got this utter embrace by the evangelicals uh, of these Muslims. In many cases, yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Can you, can, you, can you enlighten us here? What's taking place? Well, you know, uh, <clears throat> We all want to do good. We all want to, uh, uh, we all want to welcome, uh, people. We want to be encouraging. We want to be welcoming. Um, we hope that somehow our conciliatory behavior, our conciliatory attitude, will convince people with fundamental differences in their viewpoints to come around to our way of thinking. And we think we can do that just by being nice guys and by uh, cultivating their friendship and by um, you know agreeing to listen to whatever they have to say and hear them out. And, you know, it's a difficult issue because um, there's about 3 million Muslims in the United States. And I would say, and we're bringing in hundreds of thousands more every year through refugee resettlement, through asylum, uh, through student visas and other means. Uh, You know, they talked last year about the Syrian refugee problem and how we were going to bring in 10,000 refugees. At that point, we already had 100,000 Syrians in the United States that had come in here through other immigrant and non-immigrant programs. So the 10,000, and actually it turned out to be over 12,000 that Obama brought in in 2016, was a drop in the bucket. But... um, we want to have everything work. 
we, we don't want to have the problems that sometimes these people bring. And it's a difficult issue because there's already a lot of Muslims here. And I would say 90, 95% of them are perfectly happy to live in our country, to obey our laws, to raise families, to be, to prosper and, and grow. But their leadership, especially their imams, their leadership doesn't want that. All of the uh, Muslim leading organizations in the United States, virtually all of them, are Muslim Brotherhood front groups or uh, front groups of another major organization that I identify in this article. And they're not interested in accommodating us. They're interested in fooling us. And the trouble is that we don't know the difference. Mm. And, 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 and some of them are very good at being conciliatory, pretending to be conciliatory, when in fact they're really not. And, you know, uh, as I say in the um, article, um, the Islamist that uh, this evangelical Christian minister has uh, partnered with, uh, his, his name is uh, uh, Yasir Qadi. Um, he is a very radical guy. Yes. And, and he, 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 he comes across as very uh, articulate, um, very um, congenial, but I have watched videos where he calls Christians the spawn of Satan. Right. He calls Christians liars. Uh, he, I, I mean, really, really vitriolic stuff. Now, if he's changed any of that attitude, I would sure like to see it, but I don't see that he has. And all the organizations that he deals with are all either Muslim Brotherhood organizations or, like, for example, the Islamic Circle of North America, which is a... Um, Organization of the Jamaat-e-Islami, which is a Pakistani organization that is pretty much as influential as the mother, uh, Muslim Brotherhood. And he's also a uh, member of the Muslim Brotherhood's Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America, and that organization uh, engages in lawsuits, lawfare, it's trying to legitimize Sharia law in the United States, and that is something is completely, completely incompatible with our Constitution. It would force us to set up two separate legal systems, one for Muslims and one for Christians, and that's just totally unacceptable. Amen. It's you know, I just uh, at the opening of the program, I just mentioned the. Uh uh, people don't think it can happen in the West or happen here. It's and happening. It's, right. it, it is. And in fact, uh, news today, the, uh, German, uh, court, Sharia police may patrol streets. One, one city in uh, Germany is allowing a self-appointed Sharia police to continue enforcing Islamic law in their city. People, 
I mean, this is crazy. You can't. Yeah. They and they propose that kind of thing all the time here. And you know, we already have some um, similar uh, legal situations set up, like for example, in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, a illegal alien um, activist group called Casa de Maryland. Um, essentially does community policing in Montgomery and the police are hands off and so it's not as though the uh, the Muslims are asking for something that hasn't already been done here it's happening it is in, in, in uh, jurisdictions where there are liberals who are willing to accept this kind of thing as in Montgomery County Maryland They'll just they'll just let it happen. The, the, the camel's nose in the tent. Exactly. And, and Mr. Simpson, do, do, obviously, you see this taking place, uh, barring any kind of, uh, well, if we continue on this trajectory, especially with the evangelical embracing uh, of the Muslims, uh, as we saw with uh, Qadi. And uh, I think it was James White. And I know that I got so many emails because I had questioned uh, Dr. White's intent. Why him? Why why Cotty? Brandon House had done the same thing and others. Uh, you know, why him? And why are you doing this? And, of course, my goodness, I thought, you know, you'd think I, I killed a puppy on, in, in front of TV. But uh, it's... It, there's there's this brainwashing and and this uh, and I know that, that that we as Christians and we as Americans and conservatives we know we're, we're we, we try our best to, to be all inclusive but my goodness to, to well, our girls it is a difficult um, situation because we do have a lot of Muslims in this country and most of them want to live their lives in peace it's the leadership. It doesn't want that, and unfortunately, uh, they're the ones who will call the shots. The moderates, uh, uh, Zudi Jasser, for example, are are vilified. Um, Ayan Ali Hersi, that uh, Somalian woman, brave Somalian woman, who's spoken out against uh, some of Islam's practices. You know, she gets death threats, and all of these organizations just roundly um, reject them. And I don't see any Christian coming forward to um, talk with somebody as articulate and as knowledgeable as, for example, I am Hirsi or Zudi Jaffer. They go for the people like um, um, Kadi. And it, it's a difficult issue because we do have to somehow confront this sort of... Uh, irreconcilable difference and the and it's not going to happen with the Islamic leadership we have right now because they are determined and they have joined forces with the left in this country to uh, basically use Islam and use Sharia law as just another wedge to divide everybody and uh, and I've always worried about that because they're being very successful. And this is, I would say, this is uh, prima facie evidence of that. 
because now we have evangelicals on both sides of this issue that are, uh, you know, at war with each other. Now, that's what they want. That's what the left wants. That's what the Islamists want. And I guarantee you that most of the Muslims don't want to do that. We, we just want to be left alone to live our lives, raise our children, uh, have a, have a decent life that America up until, uh, just recent decades, uh, provided as a light to the world. Yep. But the left has gone crazy, and especially over the last eight years with, uh, Obama, it's gone totally crazy, and, uh, they've turned our nation into, uh, little groups of warring fragments. And it's, you know, you have the left promoting, uh, all of the homosexual agenda at the same time that they're promoting Sharia law and Islamism. How do those two things reconcile? And the answer is they don't. And they don't want them to. It's another way they're putting a bunch of uh, bombs in a room and then lighting the fuse. That's what that's what this whole thing is about. So the trouble is we do have to come to some kind of meeting of the minds, but by doing it through the interfaith dialogue and letting the Islamists come in to essentially uh, mainstream uh, Sharia law, mainstream radical Islamic concepts, or even just fundamental Islamic concepts, is not the way to do it. The way to do it is to declare the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization, which would immediately open up uh, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, uh, the Muslim Students Association, the Muslim American Society, all of these groups that work together uh, in a conspiracy to destroy our company, country, they would be wide open for uh, lawsuits, they'd be wide open for all kinds of investigations, and my favorite, uh, uh, RICO uh, asset seizures. Absolutely. You know, Mr. Simpson, of business and send the radical packing because they're part and parcel of what's going on in the street today. You know, the, the uh, CARE, Council on American Islamic Relations, declared its unity with the Black Lives Matter movement. So now both of Muslims and uh, radical blacks and, of course, the white communists are all together in the street. Um, uh, trying to shut down our nation, trying to prevent Trump from leading. And they're all together in that. And we could shut that down overnight with that designation. I, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, I, and it's necessary. My question to you, and, and this might seem like a very academic question, but how in the world, given 9-11, given the events of 9-11, how did we get here? From 9/11, right here. Well, I, I, I think unfortunately it's human nature. We have uh, the mass of us would rather not be bothered. You know, that's I'd say 90% of Americans would rather not be bothered. We have a media. And that's probably, in my mind, the biggest thing, is we have a media 
that betrays us. We have a media that misleads us. We have a media that have, for the last 10 years or more has been telling us that it's all okay, that all Muslims are fine, and if you think otherwise, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're an Islamophobe. That's right. And in fact, I, got a, I, I saw a Twitter feed today where uh, 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 Dr. White and uh, Yasser Qadi were talking about us, uh, the haters. <laughs> the haters. Was my name mentioned in there? I knew that was coming. No. Oh, okay. You know, no, but uh, but you know that was something that I considered putting in the uh, article when I wrote it. You know, next thing you know, they're going to be calling me a hater. Well, it's I didn't put it down because I hadn't done it, but <laughs> didn't take them but a couple of days. James, yeah. uh, you, you just uh, mentioned the media and how the media really has has gone so far off the reservation uh, with this. Trump's presidency, and you know we were just talking in the first segment about the um, the Joe Scarborough, Mika Brzezinski tweets that went out this morning, um, and then we have stories uh, where Trump has called the the media an enemy of the American people. Do you agree that the way the media has been since Trump has been elected, the mainstream from CNN to MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times? And all the lies that they, uh, the lies and the name calling that they have done against Trump. Do you agree that they are an enemy of the people? Mm -hmm. And I think that they have been for a lot longer than anybody's willing to acknowledge. You know, the New York Times still has its um, <clears throat> Walter Durante uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize framed on its halls in its executive offices, and Walter Durante was a Soviet agent of influence who was working for the New York Times and he went to the Soviet Union and stayed there throughout the 30s when Stalin was committing mass murder and he knew all of the things that were going on. In fact, he's the one who used to say one man's death is a statistic a million men's deaths. I mean, one man's death is a tragedy, a million a statistic. And he used to go around laughing about that. And the Soviets plied him with drink and women and money and fame and ego stroking. And he was a Soviet agent of influence. And the New York Times still has his award on their halls. And they engaged in very destructive, you know, very dangerous uh, I would say seditious activity during World War II, printing stories that they shouldn't have printed, and of course throughout the 50s and in the Vietnam War, and right up until today. And all of the mass media has been far left for a long time, and in fact there was a strategy initiated in the 1930s to infiltrate American media because the Soviets knew that that was where they would have the greatest impact. And so they infiltrated the media and they infiltrated Hollywood. And I mean, that's a matter of historic record. And I can cite you the books where it's discussed in detail and the 
specific Soviet agents that came over here and engaged in that. I mean, you know, it's nothing new and it's much deeper and much more entrenched than any of us like to think to the point where it's almost a foregone conclusion that if you're going to work for CNN, you're going to work for NBC or ABC, one of them, you're going to be a hard leftist and maybe even a communist. Hmm. What do you see, uh, James, as uh, where, where this is going to head? Obviously, the media and the political establishment, both on the left and the right, are pushing to remove Trump or at the very least delegitimize his authority as president um, you know, through their hating and propaganda. But the people really don't seem to care. Uh, do you see them continuing this path that they're on of self-destruction? Well, I, think, I, I, I think they're getting seriously hit. I think they're really, really setting themselves up. I mean, the the uh, I, I mean, we even have Democrats now coming out and saying, you know, I, I think we should stop this whole Russia thing. You know, because they know, for one thing, people are sick of it. They know that a lot of people just smell a rat, and they don't really think that uh, 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 maybe there's a lot of there there. And especially with uh, James O'Keefe's latest uh, expose, which was just brilliant. Uh, you know, they're just uh, they're they're getting killed, and um, I think a lot of people, anybody who pays attention, is asking uh, himself or herself, whatever happened with Hillary? I mean, how is it, you know, you can only browbeat some people so much and, and uh, you know, lie to them so much. With the knowledge, with the stuff that we know about Hillary, the stuff that we know that's happened already, everybody's saying, "What about that?" Mm. You know, um, and I think that people are really, really getting fed up. A lot has to change in the media, and uh, we see little, little um, cracks in the ice. You know, we, we see CNN retracting stories about Trump and Russia. We see um, people uh, asking more careful questions. Uh, <clears throat> we see a little bit of hesitancy uh, on the part of the media. It's, it's, it's not nearly enough, I don't think. Uh, I have suggested that Trump go on the television uh, networks because that's where most people still get their news despite the internet uh, 90, 95% of Americans still get their news from the three networks um, you should go on the networks uh, very regularly weekly at prime time to explain what the issues are vis-a-vis what the fake news tells the world they are and that would go a long way towards both terrorizing the media into uh, shaping up and also uh, giving people some clear guidance on what's going on because that's one of uh, Trump's biggest strengths is his ability to uh, talk. He is an incredibly good speaker and uh, we saw that in the uh, State of the Union address. Amen to that. And they've been trying to, they've been trying to derail him and distract him uh, but you know he's still he's he's moving forward with many elements of his uh, uh, 
agenda more than <laughs> a lot more than Bush did in his first uh, you know uh, six months and much better stuff stuff that really needs to be done and of course there's a lot more that could be done he could have had a much harder uh, uh, immigration ban I would have recommended uh, a complete moratorium for a year on all refugee resettlement uh, just, just Mr. Simpson, I don't want to. Uh, I apologize for breaking in here. We only have about uh, sixty seconds left of your time oh, with us. Which oh no, <laughs> this I, I love this. I love re- uh, folks. If you ask what we read, what I read, I read articles by James Simpson, uh, American thinker. Uh, uh, fantastic. I, I want to give you the opportunity. To, uh, where else, Mr. Simpson, um, can people find your articles? Well, I've been writing a lot recently at a new website called Bomb Throwers. Right. Uh, American Thinker, not so much. A Daily Caller. I have a lot of articles on Daily Caller. Um, if you go to my personal website, which is nothing more than a landing page called crisisnow.net, there are links to my archives in numerous uh Websites where I have published. Okay, crisis. Wait a minute. Crisisnow.net, right? Crisisnow.net. All right. Get the in the time. I'll build it into an actual website. Okay. Crisisnow.net for the landing page. Um, Yeah, it has links to all my uh, many of my archives and many of the different uh, other webs where I've where I've published. Sounds good. And, of course, uh, the other websites, Daily Caller, uh, Bomb Throwers, American Thinker, but uh, Crisis, uh, crisisnow.net, and, of course, Amazon, your work there. We're out of time. Please come back. Oh, I'd love to. Oh, fantastic. One of my favorite writers, really, James Simpson. Uh, he used to be with the uh, Washington Office of Management and Budget. Uh, great finance guy, great author, great patriot. Thank you, Mr. Simpson. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Folks, we'll be right back. Network break. Stay right where you're at. But a bang, you're charging irrechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP proof. And it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, six AA batteries off the grid when other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night. Go to GreenInnovative.com. That's GreenInnovative.com. Folks, in these uncertain times, it just makes sense to have a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most important tasks, and that's preparing food. This is the way to go. There is nothing better than a Minuteman rocket stove from MinutemanStove.com. We all need a way to cook and a method to process water. I mean, think about it. Think about the many things that could happen to you. Minuteman rocket stove can provide your family or group the perfect solution. It's small, lightweight, wood-burning, and every bit as powerful as a kitchen stove. It's smoke fully self-contained for clean storage and transport. Because it's so efficient, it cuts down on your wood gathering and processing chores to a tenth what would be required if cooking the old-fashioned way over an open fire. So don't rely on gas or fuel stoves. Prepare your family. Prepare for yourself. Order a Minuteman rocket stove today. It's going to make bad times much better. Folks, MinutemanStove.com. MinutemanStove.com. Need I say more? You should have a Minuteman, the survival stove in an ammo can. 
For investors, timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash, trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com, PreciousTimberProfits.com. How you liking it now? Kate's Law passed by the House. House Republicans took action Thursday, today, to crack down on illegal immigrants, illegal aliens. What is, what is so hard about the word illegal? And by the way, by the way, James Simpson does address, uh, or previous guests address, uh, some of this. Did you? Yeah, I want to say something to yeah. you guys. With the Supreme Court, um, implementing the majority of Trump's immigration executive order, that is going into effect tonight. And I saw an article on, on Drudge earlier today. I don't know if it's still up there. Something about lawyers lining up at, at, uh, JFK. Um, oh yeah, my I question saw that. Was gonna, oh I yeah, here that. it is. New travel ban set to take effect tonight. Lawyers set up shop at JFK. My question is, I haven't seen anything about this. I looked. Any planned protests do we know about? Are there going to be people like there were last time at the airports holding up the signs and? Oh, you can bet on it. You you can I, I you can bet on it, in any way to disrupt the uh, the flow. These are swamp lawyers. That's all they, they, they are. And th- this is ridiculous. What does these lawyers hope to accomplish if the Supreme Court well, already ruled on it? Uh, it, it, I, I suppose provide them representation. Given the fact, um, if we're talking about an illegal activity or what would we say, you know, the, the travel ban coming in, uh, unauthorized, I'm sure that there'd be some level of detention. Of course, having you know them being able to represent. I, look, I don't know, but okay. it, 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 it's to me, it's kabuki theater. It's just, it's just a bunch of, uh, it's a dog and pony show. But you've got, uh, you know, the swamp lawyers, as I mentioned yesterday. When I was on Infowars yesterday. Uh, Mueller, Comey, McCabe, all swamp lawyers, courtesy, of course, of Matt Bracken. Folks, if you haven't had the chance, I think. I think Matt, Matt Bracken's, uh, uh, clip is up. Video is up. I'm not a hundred percent. I'll check right now. I think it is. I, I there, oh yes. Yeah. It I, yeah. What? Okay. It is up. And, and, and folks, if you haven't had a chance to, to view that, uh, in its entirety by itself, uh, view Matt Bracken's, uh, uh, segment. And, and, and please share that because people want to know what a civil war would look like. Matt Bracken, of course, so kind to be uh, a guest on our program yesterday. He's been in countries during civil wars. He can tell you and it's not pretty. So this is something that we have to uh, we have to watch. But I just want to cover a couple of things. 
the death knell of the mainstream media, the corporate media, and I, and I saw a uh, on my Twitter feed, I saw an image of a tombstone with, uh, I think it was CNN, uh, 1980 to 2017, and I think it's so true because what we've what we've got is you've got a number of people within the new media, independent journalists, independent investigative journalists coming after CNN, MSNBC, the Rachel Maddows, the Darking Bog, the uh, Darking, Darking Bogs. What's that? Or I could say Barking Dogs. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I like Darking Bogs better. I don't know why, but I do. Hey, everything looks like noodles. <laughs> it's a joke between Eric the Tech and I. Anyway, uh, these, these barking dogs, um, I, I think now are coming to the, coming to the, we, I think the American people are coming to the realization that, that these teleprompter readers are just mimicking what the elites, the, the deep state, yep. uh, give them, you know, so mm-hmm. you've got, the situation, and let's not forget what is taking place, taking place inside the Beltway. Anyone who does any one of these darking bogs, that was an intentional slip, or barking dogs, any one of these, these so-called journalists from the left, they're all from the left generally, uh, most of them anyway, um, talking about, they're making comparisons to the, the days of Nixon, Nixonian Watergate days with the independent council. You know, consider the fact that, that the acting director of the FBI today is the focus of three separate investigations by the Senate and by the Department of Justice Inspector General. Three separate investigations. You think he should be fired? Yeah, I think so. And of course, Mueller, who is the independent, uh, counsel, is Chummy with James Comey. James Comey himself perhaps violating the Records Act, which is a felony. Think about that. And having said that, Mueller, Comey, their cozy, and McCabe, they're a very cozy relationship with one another. But, uh, the, uh, a couple of things with respect to the opposition research. What we're seeing is this conglomerate of opposition research. And I think if I were to, if I were to, like last year, um, Oxford, the word or phrase of the year was post-truth. And then there was, uh, what was the other one aside from post-truth? Alternative truth? Alternative facts. Alternative no. facts, yeah. But the, there was yet a, there was yet a third. If I were to provide a word or phrase of the year for 2017 from the Hagman report, what would it be? What would it be? It would be opposition research because at the core of everything is the opposition reason. What is taking place is opposite opposition research or assassination politics. This is what is taking place today. You've got these groups. For example, David Brock's Media Matters for America, uh, correct the record to a lesser extent, Snopes, but nonetheless present, which is being, and you have to follow the money. Who's funding these, these organizations? 
Andrew Kerr, by the way, uh, just a tremendous job, tremendous job investigating David Brock's Media Matters for America. I'm sorry, not necessarily MMFA, but the other, uh, the super PAC that he's got. Um, and the, the name escapes me. But all of these opposition research groups are at the epicenter of the Russian narrative. And you've got Fusion GPS, folks. Fusion GPS. And you're going to be hearing a lot or more or should be hearing more about, uh, for example, Fusion GPS, founded back in 09 by three, get this, three Wall Street Journal reporters, Glenn Simpson, who ran opposition research for the Clinton White House. You've got Peter Furch, the Mexican or Mexico City bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal, whose wife works for companies that are intertwined and favorable and dependent on NAFTA. Gee, huh, isn't that coincidental? And Thomas Caton, back in 2012, Fusion GPS, this opposition research company, was hired to dig dirt up on Mitt Romney. I wonder who did, I wonder who hired him. In 2015, they were hired to dig up dirt on the Center for Medical Progress. Who hired them there? Guess Planned Parenthood. You're right. And in 2016, they were behind the Trump dossier. Now the Trump dossier, of course, is, uh, <laughs> of dubious, dubious intelligence to say the least. The, uh, this is a secret, the Fusion GPS has, has been billed, uh, Paul Sperry has written about this and other authors, but they're a secretive Washington firm that's commissioned, uh, in many cases to engage in political assassinations. The Senate Judiciary Committee threatened to subpoena the firm Fusion GPS after it refused to answer questions and provide records to the panel asking who financed the Trump dossier? Who financed that? Which was circulated during the election. They refused to answer that. So what's the company hiding? See, Fusion GPS describes itself as a research and strategic intelligence firm. And again, founded by the three Wall Street Journal investigative reporters, but congressional sources actually state that uh, this is a kind of an arm of the Democrats. And the founders who are more political activists as opposed to journalists have a very pro-Hillary, anti-Trump, anti-capitalistic, anti-conservative, pro-progressive agenda. This is all, this is what this is all about. Folks, we are winding into, coming into a hot civil war. I'll never forget, and I'm going to turn this over to Joe. I'll never forget, folks, when I sat in Washington, D.C., that one day, that one morning, and my source looked at me and said, it's about to get really ugly. He was only off about four or five years. I think had things taken a little bit of a different turn, perhaps they might have gotten ugly back then. Had the, had the real story of Barack Hussein Obama been let loose, perhaps things might have got really ugly and really hot back then. But I'm telling you now, I believe that we are already in, and you, 
you can go back and listen to Matt Bracken. We are in a civil war right now. We are in a war of ideology. We are in a war between the haves and the have-nots. We are in a war between the people who espouse and embrace freedom and constitutional and, and, and rights against those who want to put the boot of oppression on, on the American public. And it's amazing to see people like that, uh, that absolutely disgusting Lapone, that actress Lapone. I don't, I can't, is it Patty Lapone? I don't even know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, who, who was interviewed and, and he was, she was in, and, fo- and folks, you probably know this interview. And I wasn't even going to mention this because it just really makes me want to vomit. But this Patty Lapone, in my personal opinion, when someone, when when a, when when a, a reporter stuck a microphone in her face and asked her what she would do if President Trump had uh, would appear to, to watch her performance, she said, "I wouldn't perform. I wouldn't perform." He says, "Why not?" You know, she said, "Because I hate that beep mf'er." That's what she said. Because I hate that mf'er. Now. To me, and, and tell me if I'm wrong with this. Tell me if I'm wrong. In order to hate someone, don't you have to know them? Or at least, well, maybe you don't. I don't know. But hate is a pretty strong emotion to me. Indifference to me is the opposite of love. Hate signifies or denotes a level of, of of strong emotion. I, I, in a sense, I, the the Islamic terrorist who cuts the head off an innocent person, do I hate that person? Absolutely. So I guess there's that. But for the but, but back to the back to the issue, Lapone and De Niro and all of these mopes out there who think that their opinions mean a damn thing. Just like some of these bloggers who believe that their opinions, uh, mean anything when they, when they would do nothing but puke into their own echo chamber of lies. I don't know. By the way, I took a purple stick and some of Ted's vitamins. Can you tell? Well, then you must have been holding out because I thought I'd, I consumed all the purple sticks. They came today. Did they? Interesting. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. They're locked up in the office safe. Uh, actually, uh, Geraldo's, uh, uh, vault. Um, no, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, okay. folks, look, uh, you know, here's the thing. Uh, we are, a, we, we, the Hagman Report, and I want to thank everyone for your support of the Hagman Report. We depend upon your support to move forward, to be able to bring you the truth. We are developing, uh, we are developing Look, we're, uh, investigative teams to infiltrate. We have done that. Uh, volunteers to infiltrate these leftist groups and other groups and other organizations. The fruit of this is just coming to, to it's just now coming to, to, to coming out, providing us with information. Uh, thank you for that support. Thank you for your financial support. A lot of it, a lot of what we do is dependent upon your financial support. We thank you for that. A lot of what we do, everything that we do is dependent upon your prayerful support. 
everything that we do is dependent upon your sharing about our platform to others. We do have sponsors, and thank you to our sponsors. And the sponsors that we bring in, and I'm going to tell you this, the sponsors that we bring in, we, 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 we've had people come to us and say, can we, can we advertise on your show? And after we look at things, no. But there are certain sponsors who deliver or who bring for, bring with them a solution to a problem at a very economical price or something that's necessary. I want to introduce you to one right now because this is, to me, this is one of the greatest items and greatest companies I've ever, I've ever had the pleasure of really getting to know. Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you. Let's, let's bring this person. Yeah, we're going to, uh, let's do We this. have with us Tom Brennan from, uh, Solark and, uh, Bono was going to join us, but apparently it's just going to be Tom tonight and we're going to be talking about the, the portable solar LLC.com, their website, the products that they offer there. And, uh, Tom is with us to, to not only reintroduce the product, but tell us, um, as much as you can about it in the time we have. Tom, welcome to the show. Hi guys. It's good to see you. I know last time we came on, we were having some problems with the, uh, with the Skype function and we didn't get the video working right. And this time we do and, uh, we see you. We hear you loud and clear. So welcome back to the show. Appreciate it. You know, folks, if I can just say this, uh, and, and Tom, I wasn't here because of a family emergency last time, but I just want to say this. I, 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 I love, okay, I'm, I love your, I love your product. I love, I love your product, but I, I really want you to introduce it to our audience because I'm not sure if I try to explain it, I can translate it the best way. So just, if you don't mind, introduce your product to our audience. Uh, I know what it does, and I know its value. And folks, let me tell you something. Listen carefully, because this <laughs> this will give you solutions to problems that you could have down the road, or if you don't have this, this 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 will be a way. I mean, this is a tremendous a tremendous product. Go ahead, sir. I... So, so I'm uh, one of the engineers at uh, Portable Solar, and we formed the company because we wanted to get more. Christian families prepare. We we don't want them to be victims uh, or vulnerable when um, uh, we have a, uh, a grid down scenario. Uh, and and the two most overlooked preparation items that people most overlook are sources of water and sources of energy, and mainly energy for preserving their food, uh, keeping a little bit of lights on, maybe some fans and some other things, communication. Uh, without those two things, you're, it's very difficult to stay in place, and you're going to have to to leave. So we 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 formed this company to uh, based on a lot of uh, work. A lot of engineers came together, and we we tried to enable people to do solar, either educate them on solar so that they know what's good and what's bad to look for. Uh, because we're we're totally fine if you want a different solution than us. That's okay. We just want people to have good solutions. To be prepared in terms of power outages, whether it's you know a day or a week or months or years, because what what's happening in the world is the the world is focused on attacks on the power grid, and they're focused in two different ways. 
second hey Tom I don't know if you can hear me um, we didn't get we didn't get either of those uh, this, the oh. Skype feeds freezing up um, Eric I don't know if you want to reconnect or if we can just try to get the uh, get it back but I don't want, I want to make sure the audience uh, hears what you have to say and uh, it froze right there when you started to explain the the two parts so can you hear me now yeah yeah okay sorry um, anyway what the 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 world is the the new blitzkrieg weapons of of the future are 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 not huge militaries it's actually cyber attack and emp and they're they're focused on hitting the the electrical grids of whatever country you're trying to hurt um so so that's why we see Kim Jong Un so developed, so so focused on his his missile uh, delivery system, and and EMP weapons, which is uh, fission nuclear weapons. So anyway, uh, where our company is focused on on helping people either educate them. Uh, there's lots of educational stuff on our website. We're, we're okay if you you get a different solution than us. Um, that's totally okay. We just want you to get something that is going to help your family um, in an emergency, whether it's a week or a month or a year. So, so that's what our our company is focused on: EMP protected solar systems. And it's not just the uh, and folks, it's not just for uh, in cases of emergency. Also, that's when they really would it would come in the uh, most beneficial. Uh, a lot of people don't understand how much it costs uh, to run a household full of appliances with your electric bill every month. With me, I, I it's just me and my wife in a house, and I'm paying almost $200 a month in electricity, and, it, and it's like, man, you know, where is all that money and, and power going? Uh, tell us about how you can use the solar arc uh, generator system and still run your electricity and how, how it saves you money if you do have the solar power along with your electrical um, outlets. Sure. So, so one of the things that we did was we, we, we used, uh, proven military designs. One of our engineers used to test, um, EMPs at White Sands, New Mexico EMP test facility. So anyway, we, not only did we want to, uh, protect against EMP, but by doing so, we can help protect the appliances that keep things powered. Um, and that way you can use it every day to reduce your electric bill. And what people don't understand is solar panels will last you 50 plus years these days. They, uh, they're impervious to hail, uh, at least up to baseball size hail. Um, and, and one solar panel, like a 250 watt solar panel, uh, will produce as much work as two people working hard in the field all day long and consuming an extra 4,000 calories of food over those two people. So solar power is, is the best long-term power generation for your needs uh, so that you can free yourself up to, to do other things. And that, that's an outage. But but in the meantime, if there's, uh, it, it'll just help you reduce your electric bill, and that's just another side benefit. And uh, I know from the last time you were on, uh, when you purchase the, the generator, uh, you get a 30% tax credit. And oh then, yeah, that's right. How long does it take? Do you, would you say uh, for the system to pay for itself in the saving of uh, money on your uh, on your bills? It, it typically well, you start well. It's kind of like you're you're paying for your electricity now, and and it's going to pay you it's going to pay you back in the future. So it, it takes roughly maybe about ten years. 
our, our systems uh, are self-installable so that the homeowner can get them installed or, or hire an electrician, which is very inexpensive uh, to install them. Um, we, we try and enable you to do as much of it yourself so that you, you learn and as well as save probably a, anywhere from a third to 50% on the cost of the system. Um, and, uh, but anywhere, it's, it's about 10 years is, is the period. After that, you just, like I said, the panels will last you 50 plus years. Okay. Um, I do have a question for you guys though. Sure. So what, if, if there was a power outage, you know, do you, what do you guys have in terms of preparedness for your family or, or your extended family? In in my basement, I have a rig where my wife is going to get on a bicycle and, and pedal to get the uh, the juices. Do, do you rolling. really have that? No, I'm joking. I'm oh, joking. Okay. <laughs> I, I was going to say because because she would have to you you'd have to trade off people because just like I said, one solar panel replaces two of those pedaling all day long kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so so you're you're those are those are terrible things. They look cool and they're a good way to lose weight, but you know, well, you, let me seriously answer that question for you, okay? Um, before, in, in the, where I used to live, I, I, I spent five years, uh, putting, putting aside money, uh, putting, putting away money until I was able to afford a whole house generator. I had a, I had a small, smaller generator and, uh, I traded that in along with some cash to a company and they installed a whole house generator. Okay. Sounds great to me. Natural gas or? Nat- natural or- gas. Ah. No. Okay. Okay. So, because propane, I, I just didn't have the room or the, at, at any rate, I thought, man, I'm just lucky as all get out. And, and, and I was. However, there was an issue. At the same time that we had a power outage, there was an issue with a gas line. And it wasn't because of an earthquake. It was like a, it was just this really weird set of circumstances. So it wasn't the power that affected the gas, but they were both affected. But they were, they were both affected. And it was, it was a, it was actually a construction situation. But nonetheless, well, I was, I was without power for three days, but yet I had a generator, whole house and- generator. And, and so, so what, what people don't realize is I, I, I did the same mistake as I, I did that too a long time ago. I, I got a whole house gener- standby generator, runs on natural gas. But what we experienced about seven years ago is, um, when the, 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 and I live in Texas, so we have a lot of natural gas here, but what pumps the gas are electric, uh, thousand psi, uh, pumps. And when we have, we had rolling outages during that time about seven years ago. And the, 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 instead of getting a thousand psi natural gas, we got about 600 and the, and the gas generators wouldn't fire. So, um, if, if we lose the electricity over a wide region, then you also lose natural gas and you also lose, uh, water. You, you'll have water in the water tank for probably about uh, 24 to 48 hours. That's how much is stored in the water, uh, water towers. Um, and then after that, they usually use diesel generators, which they can run as long as they have fuel for them. 
Um, and they, but the problem is, how are you going to get diesel fuel when the gas pumps don't work? Um, so, so we really don't have a long storage of, of water either, uh, maybe about a week after they, uh, use the water. So, um, that's why the, the, the standby generators are, are okay for short-term outages, maybe about a week or two weeks. Uh, you'll also need to realize that you'll need a big supply of oil and filters because you have to change the oil in them every maybe 100 run hours or, or uh, maybe some are up to 200 run hours. So that's only about four days continuous use. Uh, so um, th- there's just some drawbacks to, to generators. There's some good things. Uh, they can supply a lot of power like a standby generator can, but they're just not good long-term. They don't come with a 30% tax credit. And they don't, they're not good for anything longer than maybe a week or two week outage. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly why we have asked, we, we have partnered with this company. When I say partnered, uh, this is our go-to company for this type of energy. This is a solution to a problem that I'll bet you guys didn't even know you had. But you'll, you'll find out, believe me, at the wrong time. And uh, we're all about solutions, and this is why I am so excited to have with us this gentleman, this product, this day. Go ahead, sir. And uh, what, one of the things that people don't realize is that uh, that's kind of a secret is FEMA has prepared against, you know, all these different scenarios. But if you check, the one scenario that they don't check or they don't um, uh, prepare for is – a grid down scenario uh, is is a cyber attack or EMP on the, on the nation. They they have they they say oh get three days worth of food and water and then we'll come in to save you. The when there's a long term or when there's a, a widespread grid outage, there is there is not much savings. So uh, the the federal government is not prepared. The state governments are starting to do some things. You know, there's been four states that have passed legislation like Maine. Um, Virginia, uh, let's see, um, Arizona and Florida that have passed some limited legislation to, to do some things about against cyber attack and EMP and solar flares. Um, but by and large, it's, it's, it's very, very small or it's just looking at the cost of, of, of protecting the grid. Um, so, so we really think that uh, Christian families ought to take the initiative. You know, a, a lot of us at least have guns and, and uh, or, or you know, food storage or, or you know. But the two things that people really need to focus on are, are a source of water and a source of, of minimal energy to <clears throat> to keep their food preserved. Yeah, and to preserve their medicines, uh, or maybe it's to run their um, uh, respiration machines at nighttime, CPAP machines, uh, or, or just lights. We're, we're actually working with, um, some other countries like Africa where just a little bit of lighting and fans and just a little bit of electricity can mean huge differences in, in, uh, where they don't have it. Now, um, Tom, there's a lot of people, uh, even myself included in this, who will think, well, you know, this is pretty complicated. Uh, you know, you have to buy the unit, then you have to pay somebody to put it in. Um, 
how do folks get started? What, what would you, what would your advice be to folks who are interested in this? And I said pay to put it in. I know that's not what you guys do, and I want you to to explain that. But um, if somebody's curious and interested uh, about further information on their on your product, what should they do? Uh, first, I would recommend they they, they try our website. It's uh, uh, www.portablesolarllc.com. Uh, there are educational uh, presentations. There's educational videos there. There's a lot of, of comparisons. Uh, there's there's detailed comparisons where you can compare us against Tesla. You can compare us against in, uh, lots of other solar solutions out there. So you can see what's good, what's bad about you know what you might be looking at. Um, because you, you you know you can't just buy some little dinky solar panel and expect it to run your refrigerator. Um, so there's there's educational things on our website. Uh, there's also we do free consultations to people so that they can uh, figure out how many panels and batteries they need for what they're trying to power when the grid's down. Uh, that's how we size the number of batteries and panels, and uh, you know, in their budget. And then the other things are we try and enable you to do this yourself as much as possible. So. For example, there's new technologies out there where you can install solar panels yourself. You still get the 30% federal tax credit and the state credits if you have if your states. There's a lot of states that still have credits, but those are going away. Um, so you you can uh, there's new technologies that allow you to easily install these on your roof or or above ground mounts or or ground mounts. So we sort of guide you in those technologies uh, and what's easiest. And then, um, then also ours is an all-in-one unit. There's there's uh, some newer solutions there, so that it it's all the wiring's already done for you, and all you have to do is hook up the batteries and and plug it into the grid uh, into the electric uh, grid, so that it will work automatically, kind of like your your standby generator that you've got for your whole house. It would automatically turn on uh, if the power went out. Ours automatically turns on all the time. It's like a, a UPS, an uninterruptible power supply for your house or for your critical appliances. So anyway, uh, it's it's installable within a day. All right. Or less. Okay. Now, if 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 I want if I want to create this solution for my family, which I do by the way. Um and obviously, most people, and I'm sure, are like me. We just don't even know where to start. We don't even. I don't have a clue. Okay, I'm lucky I could use a screwdriver, but not okay. Nonetheless, I, I we, we I can call you, or I go to your sure. website, but I can call you, and, and you're a kind of a, a beginning to end company. In other words, start to finish kind of kind of company. Correct. In other words, that that's correct. We we don't feel like we've succeeded until. We feel like your family is is prepared and safe. So so we will guide you in terms of you know are you a good candidate for it in the beginning? Uh, where where to place your solar panels? How what methods you can put? How to install the solar panels? How you install you know a transfer switch or this and that? Or you know do you need to hire an electrician for this or or that piece or a roofer to install the panels? And then after that, we will guide you in terms of um, testing out your system, and or if you want, just all turnkey. You know, we'll help you find an installer that'll do this for you too. We have installers all around the country. So um, we we try and our, our our goal is to save as many families because 
these other countries are are preparing, and our government is not. So all we can do is save one family at a time. You're absolutely right. Uh, Tom, we have a, uh, I forgot to mention this when you first uh, joined us, we have a video that I don't know if you guys want to play. It's a, it's a one-minute video uh, that was sent to us for the... I love it. For uh, the, uh, yeah, interview I got tonight. a lot out of it, yeah, but if, yeah, I'm sorry. Did you, uh, did you want to, did you want to, uh, play that? Oh, if you want to, go ahead. Okay. I don't have anything. Yeah, we'll play it, we'll play it right now. Uh, Very interesting. Pay attention to this, folks. Those watching on YouTube, take a, take a, take a watch to this. This is really interesting. Go ahead, uh, EMP is a serious threat, putting our nation's energy at risk. When the power grid fails, solar protects and instantly powers your critical appliances. Solark EMP hardened solar generator and EMP suppression system. Energy insurance for your family. And that was the uh, the one minute uh, video that we should have played at the at the beginning of the interview with Tom and and I apologize for not doing that. Um, a little out of sync, but still, you guys get the get the point this isn't just for disasters this isn't just for um even if a, an emp were to hit this is something that is uh there so folks can save money on their electric bills at the same time become more energy independent and uh what's interesting and tom maybe you can uh, help me out with this question you said that you can run a number of appliances and different things on on the uh the solar power generators is it easy, say, if I had my refrigerator and an air conditioner hooked up to it, would it sure. be easy for me to, you know, unhook it from the air conditioner and, let's say, and hook it up to my water heater? Uh, it, it's easy, well, with a transfer switch, which is what an item we sell that, that's also a newer technology that, that's easy for people to install within a couple hours. We'll, we'll show you how to install it. Anyway, you can select you know, how many items in your household do you want to power off the system? So, uh, yes, you can select what, what typically is done is you, you select some of the critical things that you want to run and, and things that are less critical that require a lot of power, you know, would be on the grid. And then, uh, you know, maybe you can switch that on if you happen to be home. Otherwise, the other things stay powered on solar and, and the grid automatically all the time. Okay. And now this question uh, might seem kind of silly, but this is a question for me. Um, when you have the, the solar panels hooked up, is it constantly collecting the energy or uh, just when you turn it on to use it, is that when it collects and uses the energy? Or does the energy build up, the solar energy build up over time? So let's see. Uh, that's actually, so different systems work in different ways. Ours uses the energy, uh, the solar panel energy during the day while the sun is shining, and it uses the, it automatically switches to the grid at nighttime uh, so that it keeps the batteries charged 
And with our type of system, it's more for self-installation. About two-thirds of our customers install themselves. And the reason for that is it actually doesn't sell back to the grid because we're seeing a lot of states have connection fees and so forth. And also the installation is you'd require professional installation if you sold back to the grid. And you'd require a smart meter. So we try and avoid that by just reducing how much energy you purchase from the electric company during the day. Okay. And the maintenance on making sure that, you know, is the solar panels something that needs to be cleaned regularly? Oh, that's a good question. So it turns out solar panels are really, really awesome. They're fantastic. So as long as they're at a greater than a 10-degree angle or better, then just rain will clean them automatically. So you don't have to clean them ever. We've actually done tests where we had super dirty panels, and we cleaned them, and then we tested them, and the difference in power output was less than 1%. So you don't have to worry about cleaning panels ever. The biggest thing to avoid is shade. Shading cuts the output of the panels a lot. I can imagine. So the best thing to do is get some expert advice if you can. They're free to call us at our number, and we'll help you determine the best place to put your panels, whether it's summertime or wintertime, you know, to make sure you get full sun in both winter and summer. And then also the best thing is planning the situation. And then also we'll recommend, if you had one of our systems, we'd recommend you turn off the grid to the system for a weekend so that you go, you power just the critical things in your household off the system and you verify what you think you have. So it's a good preparation type item. Absolutely. Tom, we only got about a minute left. Can you tell people where to go to get more information and how to contact you if they wish to do so? Sure. Our phone number is 972-575-8875. They're free to call, 972-575-8875, or go to our website, portablesolarllc.com. And the biggest thing that we would suggest to you is, you know, invest in your energy now. If the U.S. loses its world reserve currency, which we can see in the next five or so years, everything that we import will be twice as expensive. So we import batteries, we import solar panels, we import electronics. So please invest in these things today if you can. And also take care of your water source. No, it's not going to break the bank. We've got about 30 seconds. It's not going to really break the bank to do so, right? I mean... No, you're talking... It depends on which state you're in, but it would be far cheaper. A solar system, a battery-based solar system, you also will be less than your house generator that you bought. And that's, folks, that is so important. That's why I like this company. I like this company. I like the knowledge that Tom has brought, and this is a solution. Like I said, this is a solution to a problem you really didn't know you had because I didn't know I had the problem until I experienced it 
and it, but but this is this also offers you alternatives, and that's what we're all about. Tom, thank you so very much. Thank you, Joe and Dad. We look forward to talking with you in the future, and and uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on. And Portable uh, Solar LLC dot com. Exactly, Portable Solar LLC dot com. And again, the phone number, folks, is nine seven two five seven five eight eight seven five. That's nine seven two five seven five. Eight eight seven five. Call them for your for your uh, free consultation. Nine seven two. Right. Five seven five. Okay. Eight eight seven five. All right. And you can uh, uh, talk to Tom or anybody over there at PortableSolarLLC.com for your uh, portable solar needs. Great product. Great product. Great company. Christian. I mean, look, this it's all about preparation. I want to thank Tom and. And uh, everyone there for coming on. We're going to do something a little bit different. I, we had an interview with uh, CSI. CSI. Y'all know CSI, right? Oh, what a great uh, just a TV show, crime scene investigation. Well, gentlemen, I met a gentleman by the name of uh, Sergeant Tom Juby, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, CSI. He's the guy. He's a CSI guy. 32 years as a member of the RCMP. He retired as a sergeant in charge of the Forensic Identification Section, Halifax, Nova Scotia. 27 years, qualified forensic crime scene examiner. Lifetime member of the Canadian ID Society. Folks, what we're going to present to you, you may remember 1998, September 2nd, near Peggy's Cove, Nova Scotia. Swiss Air passenger carrying 229 people fell out of the sky. Take a listen. Tom Tom Joby talks about this and other things right now. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of On the Edge with Doug Hagman. This is where we get into a little bit deeper the investigative into the investigative realm of, of certain cases. And um, uh, we take... We take situations that uh, we, well, we connect dots. We're dot connecting today. Our guest, my guest, uh, this uh, in this episode is retired RCMP CSI Sergeant Tom Juby. Folks, he's written a book, and I would urge everyone to go to Amazon and grab a hold of this book because it speaks of well. The, the book's title is twice as far, the true story of Swiss Air Flight 111. All right? Now, remember that. Twice as far, the true story of Swiss Air Flight 111. It's going to be in the the link to the Amazon um, uh, file is going to be in the description box of this video. Tom Juby has got a, uh, a just a tremendous resume. By the way, his website is SwissAir111.ca. That's his website. SwissAir111 Crash Investigation, this shocking and true story. This is like an event that took place back in, well, on September 2nd, 1998, that claimed the lives of 229 people. And if you research this on the, well, through the mainstream channels, the Internet and such, Wikipedia, oh, this is an in-flight fire. This is uh, a sad situation. Tom Juby is here, highly credentialed investigator, to tell us otherwise. Sergeant, welcome to 
Doug Hagman on the edge. Thank you. Thank you. By way of introduction, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, and then let's just get right into the subject. Okay. I had 32 years in the RCMP. Uh, 27 of that was as a crime scene investigator, which meant that I would go to any type of crime scene from just a normal break and enter or a hit and run accident right the way through to a homicide or in this case a major air crash disaster and uh, I had training in all types of physical evidence what you would see on your CSI programs sure uh, that's that's what I did that's what we in the RCMP do in the forensic ident section now keep in mind in Canada the RCMP uh in most areas is not only the federal and national police, but they're the provincial police and the municipal police. So is uh, guys going to all types of crime scenes. So there's an abundance of experience. And in my case, I had an abundance of fire investigative experience as well. I've been to a number of of uh, courses. I even had one of your state fire marshals uh, give me a high-level course uh, when I was in a in a northern community called Yellowknife, and he came up and gave us uh, a presentation. An absolute, absolutely fantastic guy. He couldn't understand why we had triple glazed glass in our windows when <laughs> he was used to single glaze. <laughs> Anyways, but uh, my experience was all across the country, from one coast to the other, to the north coast. And on the 2nd of September, 1998, I was stationed in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I was on a day off. In fact, I was watching Bruce Willis in Armageddon. Oh, okay. Yeah, and... uh, at 9.31.18 on the evening of the 2nd, the uh, seismic recorders recorded the the crash at sea seven, 7 kilometers off of Peggy's Cove, which is just outside Halifax. All right. And that was the, that was the start of, for me, of a major undertaking. As you can imagine, the the aircraft, an MD-11, is similar to a 747 in size. Uh, most people are familiar with 747s because of the, the movies that seems to be the typical airplane. And the MD-11 isn't much smaller. This one had 229 people on board. A hundred and, I think it was 120 were U.S. passengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, passport passengers and the rest were made up of different countries okay and and ladies and gentlemen I, I want everyone to put in context now this is September 1998 investigator uh, Tom Juby gets a call 931 p.m. respond to this air crash right off the coast of Nova Scotia but contextualize this with not just that event, but the events of 9-11 and the events of today. This is as relevant today, 
what you're about to hear as it was the day it happened, and perhaps even more so. Um, sir, uh, Sergeant Juby, go ahead. And uh, so, so you responded to this this crash. You were the well. Uh, I initially, yeah. Initially, my function was uh, in the morgue. I spent the first two months in the morgue. Um, I was in charge of the fingerprint uh, desk, uh, victim fingerprints, and throughout the process, we identified. 40 through fingerprints. Uh, DNA was used, and every 229 people were identified through DNA. A number of people were identified through dental. And so you had a, a number of systems in operation at the same time. What was horrendous, absolutely horrendous about the, the morgue was the fact that when the plane crashed, the, the tail met the nose in less than a quarter of a second. Oh. And the fuselage shattered. The aluminum of the fuselage and it's anywhere from a quarter to three-eighths of an inch thick, maybe a little more in places, and it just absolutely shattered into shards. So everything and everybody went through those shards of aluminum. Wow. And we had in the neighborhood of 15,000 body parts to deal with. And, and you were, you were on cleanup essentially, or you, you, that was your job of handling that, the morgue. I don't, I don't want us even really yeah, seem to be trivializing this. This is horrendous. Um, yes, but that, and, and I don't want to trivialize it because because it, it is it is a, a major part of it, but that is not the story here of Swiss Air 111. Okay. Um, the guys uh, the guys doing crashes uh, around the world um, deal with that type of thing. Have to deal with that type of thing because there's an international legal requirement that everybody on board be identified for death certificate purposes. And we met those international requirements, and uh, everybody was identified. Identified by means of we knew the name, we knew the birth date, and we knew an address the next akin. But this is where we get into the actual story of Swiss Air 111. We were not allowed to find out why individuals were on the plane. By day three, uh, normally when a plane goes in, a group of investigators go out and check to see if you were on the plane, who are you, what's your history, why were you on the plane, Right. where were you, where were you going, what's your story? And we were told, forget it, don't do it. By day three, nothing was further was done. Okay, and that that by is that not wow? That, that's flag one. Sure. Okay. Why? I I don't know why, um, but that was, and and it will become apparent later. Okay. Anyways, um, we get into the the um, I from the morgue. I went over to the aircraft side, and I spent the next four years working with the transportation safety board putting the plane together. 
and what it was was the fire had occurred in the forward overhead section of the aircraft just behind the cockpit. Uh, there was an extensive amount of burn and it had cut off wires, burnt off wires, burnt up the, uh, the, all the insulation and there was an extensive amount of molten aluminum from the frame material. Okay. And when we started putting this all together, uh, we had people in the hangar from, uh, of course, the, NT- the TSB, the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, controlled the safety aspect of the file. And they oversaw the reconstruction. With them, helping them, uh, for the first several months, NTSB people came in, uh, half a dozen of them. Uh, we had engineers from Boeing, with, because it was a Boeing aircraft. We had engineers from Swiss Air and their companies that do the maintenance. And we had other people who were from the company. You can imagine an aircraft has thousands of pieces on it, all constructed by the lowest bidder. And uh, that goes into the airplane. There's a joke about one of your astronauts who, who said about sitting on top of the, the, the uh, was he nervous about sitting on top of the rocket? When you've got a million pieces built by the lowest bidder, wouldn't you be nervous? <laughs> Anyways, he, they, they were in the hangar, and they were looking at the damage, and they're saying a whole lot more damage here than what we would expect from the material that could burn in that plane. And you have to remember that there's specific items in there, and a lot of it is metal, a lot of it is aluminum, an alloy of aluminum. And then there's other material that, under certain conditions, is flammable, but there's a very limited amount. And they looked at it and said, "Mm, gee, we've got a problem, we think. uh, I'm not satisfied that that's the cause. Or that's would have created that amount of molten aluminum. Well, I'm working with these guys, and I'm hearing all of this, but nothing is definite. I've got nothing definite. Just uh, we don't we don't know. And time goes by, time goes by, and a year into the into the investigation, we run a series of tests, highly advanced tests called Auger electron spectroscopy of the short-circuited wires. Whenever you have a fire in an electrical system, you end up with wires that melt, the, the insulation burns off, and they melt. Uh, they, they cross, and you get a shorting. Right. Wires short-circuit. At the instant that two wires short-circuit, they form a molten pool of liquid, and in this case it was almost 100% copper. So you have molten copper for an instant at extremely high temperatures. The estimate is that a short circuit runs at about 50,000 degrees for an instant. There's a rule of physics that I found out during this investigation, and I guess probably it, it, 
I might have been told it way back in high school, but uh, I certainly learned what it was in this investigation. And when a solid melts to become a liquid, it absorbs the atmosphere that surrounds it. It's your molecules of the material are jumping. They're extremely hot, so they're leaping and doing all kinds of things. You can imagine all kinds of things. And the air around it is also gets instantaneously hot. And those molecules are moving really quickly. And they interact. And then instantly it freezes, and they're, they're solidified into that round bead. That molten copper solidifies into a short circuit bead. And if it's handled correctly and tested correctly, you can determine what those air molecules consisted of. Okay. All right. Ocean electron spectroscopy, a fancy name, a system that was actually used on the space shuttle, the, the Challenger, to help determine how the Challenger uh, crashed. So it's been in existence for now for a long time. At the time of this crash, at least uh, 20 years. And the guy that we had doing the work had been using the, the equipment for 20 years and was considered one of the best in the world doing what he did. He had a PhD in geology and he had lectured around the world. He had written articles. You could fill up a paper just listing the articles that he had written. Uh, he had patented equipment to be used in this process and different processes. So one of the most knowledgeable guys that you could ever ask for. And he examined these beads over a period of, I think it was roughly two years. Uh, he called for certain test wires and they were provided. And when he got all through, he produced a report. And that report, his words were, the cause of the fire was sabotage. He had found in those copper beads, he had found magnesium, aluminum, and iron. And when you go on the internet, and I had done it at that time, in 1999, I had gone on and checked those. And there was a fellow down in California that had the anarchist cookbook on yep. the internet. And you could go into his cookbook, and there was an incendiary device consisting of aluminum powder, magnesium powder, and iron rust. And if you mix it all together and throw a match into it, if you had a just a lid off from a, a, a small jar sitting on the hood of your car, it would burn right through the, the motor. Wow. It's that hot. That's what they use to weld railroad tracks. It's extremely hot and it burns and it produces magnesium, aluminum, and iron in the air. And this Dr. Brown said those short-circuited wires, when they melted, they absorbed those chemicals. 
of that magnesium, aluminum, and iron. Well, the question was, can we find those elements in the aircraft? And after extensive testing, we determined that it did not come from the aircraft. There was no legitimate source for those. And I felt that we had at least sufficient grounds to conduct a criminal investigation. Sounds like it. Yeah. Now, you had your no profiling, you had your, uh, your, your people saying, well, not enough burn material in the top of the plane. And then you got Dr. Brown saying sabotage. Uh, that should have twigged a serious criminal investigation. There were some other things, but it didn't. In fact, I was severely reprimanded for conducting the limited criminal investigation that I was conducting. Um, as a, what you would call a CSI, as a forensic ident member, when I go into a, a scene, I don't do anything but a criminal investigation. I don't investigate for civil. I don't investigate for any other. An investigation to me was criminal. Right. I was there conducting an investigation. It obviously was a criminal investigation. And I was told to stop. My bosses in the RCMP severely reprimanded me and told me to stop. For doing your job. Yeah, for doing my job. And I was hauled into meetings with the TSB, the Transportation Safety Board, and the RCMP, and severely reprimanded. I had other members that I worked with brought in with me. So there was, you know, it's not just a one-on-one. -on -one, it was a group meeting, and I was picked up and, and severely reprimanded. Um, various things occurred. So anyways... Part of the part of the um, investigation involved working with members from the FAA, the Federal Aviation um, Administration down in Atlantic City. And what what they do? They have a unit down there run by a Dr. Lyon. He's a PhD, and he runs a burn unit. And what they do is they test all of the materials that go into an aircraft. Um, how do they burn? What heat do they give off? What gases do they give off? The whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. So we worked with those guys for a while, and this Dr. Lyon and another lady that works with him who, who handles most of the burn process. And we ran a series of burn tests down there to see what our materials were and were they unusual. His testing showed that none of the materials in the airplane burnt in an unusual manner. They were all normal. There was nothing that burnt exceptionally hot. Hmm. And, that, and then we ran a, a series of tests where we had a frame built we took a piece of aircraft frame, set it up to represent the overhead area of the aircraft with 
the associated materials in the area. And what you had in the top of the aircraft in the in the MD-11 in the forward section above the ceiling has a series of ducts and wires and everything is insulated and there's lots of equipment up there. Lots of that equipment doesn't burn, but the insulation does. So we set up this mock frame in a similar fashion and we set it alight. The very first test that they ran, and this is being run by the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, the TSB. Mm-hmm. The very first test, they set it alight and they set it alight again and they set it alight again and it wouldn't burn. Somehow they had mixed up the materials and had the wrong materials. They had newer material that didn't burn. Hmm. Um, normally, you would say, well, it was a mistake, but these were expensive tests, and you didn't get it right. Uh, it was kind of shot. Yeah, N- not necessarily incompetence here. It's uh, especially, and, and folks, in the forensic world, um, yeah, you just don't get it wrong like this. I think you'd probably agree. So anyways, next time down, we changed that material and put the same stuff in that had been in uh, Flight 111. And I expected to see quite a burn. I was prepared for quite a burn. But to say that sitting and watching paint dry is exciting would be similar to watching the burn that resulted from that. Hmm. Uh, the flame creeped along the, the, the mock ducts. They had been wrapped and represented what should have been there and the flame merely creeped. In fact, it had to be lit in several different places to try to get a larger burn rate. And the bottom line was the material, some of the material burnt, but the ceiling, the ceiling is all lined with metal, this, this insulation material with a metalized mylar on it. It's a, a thin film, aluminum looking plasticized material. And it's waterproof, airproof, whatever, but it's flammable what was in the ceiling did not burn when the material on the ducts below it burnt. So there was not enough burn in that true representation of what was in the overhead plane to cause everything to burn. Right. Okay. So, well, guys, uh, like I'm down there with the guys my purpose is to assist in setting it up. I've been on 15 of the MD-11 aircraft from Swiss Air. I know the materials that's in the plane. I've seen it. I've seen the plane stripped down to nothing and the material being taken out and put back in. And I spent seven weeks in the hangar in Switzerland, in Zurich, looking at their MD-11 aircraft. So I had a really good understanding of what the materials were. 
and we'd run a number of burn tests on the materials, and I understood what the materials, how they burnt. So we get done this, and the next test is to introduce a large heating unit into the into the area with the idea that there was one particular duct, air duct, airflow duct, that's unique to the Swiss Air aircraft that is a fiberglass type material. And if it was preheated from the early part of the fire before the flame got to it, it might be sufficient to cause it to ignite and burn and create the damage. So they brought in this heater and the heating unit was a 220 volt unit, large unit, that if you stood probably five, six feet from it when it was turned on, you'd get the worst sunburn of your life. Hmm. It was that hot. And within within a minute, you'd have a sunburn. You couldn't stand there that long. Sure. So anyways, they put that up in there, and it when they turned it on, it actually set this duct on fire. It was so hot. And it burnt the, the varnish that's on this duct, and then the duct went out. It, the fire on the duct went out. Then nothing, nothing in the duct would burn. Huh. And but the fire caught the rest of the mylar on fire, and and the, the, that burn is described in the book, and the video is on my website. And it was quite an exciting burn because it short-circuited the heater, and sparks flew, and. It was kind of like the 4th of July with fireworks going off in there for a few seconds. Hmm. So anyways, it rather showed that that duct didn't cause, the burning of that duct didn't cause the, uh, the molten aluminum. Because when we got done with that, all of these tests had not melted any aluminum in this frame. All right. Remember the aircraft, we have all kinds of molten aluminum. We have all kinds of it. Hmm. The ribs in the in the top of the plane. Right. So what happened was the Dr. Lyon, who ran the FAA burn unit, uh, in a meeting with him, he suggested setting up a burn where they used a thousand grams which is 2.2 pounds of this metallized mylar material. Crumple it up, put, in the, put it in the bottom of the frame and ignite it. And let's see what it does. He said a thousand grams is from what he has seen of the airplanes and he knows his airplanes. That represents what was in the burn area. A thousand grams, 2.2 pounds. Alright. And We'll run the tests on it as it burns. We can tell how much heat it gives off and, and whatnot. So when we have done this meeting, and during this meeting, he says, by the way, guys, uh, I don't think that that thousand grams will cause the damage and, and will melt the aluminum with what you saw in the crash airplane. Uh, it just won't do it. Okay. So 
okay, what's your opinion? He says, I think there's an incendiary device on top of that plane. And I'm, I'm sitting there. This guy is a PhD. He's in charge of the FAA burn unit. Uh, probably one of the most qualified guys in the world to do what he's doing. He set up equipment to measure the, the heat and the gases and everything given off by, by um, anything that burns in the plane. He built the equipment to test all of this stuff. And they've been running tests at that time. They've been running tests down there for at least 12 years. And he knew his materials. He knew his methods. And he, he was an expert. And I'm sitting in, in the room within his office with him, with two of the TSB members. And later on, I asked them, did you hear what he said? And one of them just, eh, so what? What's he know? The other guy says, yeah, I heard it, but there's nothing I can do about it. Wow. So I said, well, are you going to run the test? He said, no way. It won't amount to aluminum. We're not going to run that test. So, okay, fine. So then we're done. So two weeks later, I'm told we're going to, go back to Atlantic City and we're going to run that test. Well, why? Because it won't melt aluminum. Oh, well, we want to run that test. And we get down there and the frame is still there and everything's set up. And I'm setting up my equipment. I've got five, six cameras to oversee and, and, and whatnot. And I'm busy. And one of the TSB guys is putting the metalized mylar into the frame. And I glance over and I said, geez, Don, uh, that looks like more than a thousand grams. Oh, don't worry about it. I don't want to take any of it home. <coughs> I said, are you measuring or are you weighing it? Oh, yeah, we're keeping track of the weights. Okay, can I get those weights afterwards? Yeah, sure, no problem. So we set the thing on fire and... I thought the world was coming to an end. The frame popped and snapped and crackled and did everything. It split the ceiling. Uh, it cracked the, 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 the frame. And I, I had to pull my cameras away because it was so hot. Sure. So much smoke. This building was a, a, an arena, arena size. And it filled with smoke down to about six feet off the floor. Mm. Um, it just and when it finished there was all kinds of molten aluminum when I looked at the frame when we examined the frame it was it, it was almost identical to what we had back in Halifax for the air crash frame the, the Swiss air frame that we had reconstructed almost identical damage to it and I'm thinking, well, how much stuff did they use? And they wouldn't tell me. And I didn't find out until some time later. They used more than five and a half times the amount of material that Dr. Lyons said was up there. 
Okay. Dr. Dr. Lyons was actually wrong in his estimate of a thousand grams because when I went through the photographs to prepare my website and to prepare the book, I noticed that the aircraft, the the, the sister aircraft for our crash aircraft, uh, IWF, it didn't have the same metalized mylar. In, on the ducts that Dr. Lyons had viewed. It was a non-flammable mylar. So in effect, what Dr. Lyons viewed should have only been about 500 grams of mylar instead of 1,000. 1.1 pounds instead of 2.2. Sure. So it was close to 10, 10 times the amount of material in the burn. And you can argue, or the TSB might argue, well, it was just a test burn to see what what it would do. But the thing is, that frame was put into the back of a U-Haul truck and trucked all the way to Ottawa so that everybody could look at it. And then it was sent down to me in Halifax to to be put on display beside the reconstruction jig. And that frame is on my website, and you can see the damages that was was done. The argument might be that it what didn't truly represent the TSB's argument. It was just a test; didn't t- truly represent. But then, why was it put on display? Sure. Uh, all they would have to do is say, "Well, look at this frame. This is what mylar will do." All this metal that was molded. So they're throwing the tests. Throwing the tests. I call it the fraud test. In the book and on my website, I call it the fraud test. Because when you you have eight to ten times the amount of material, as was in the actual aircraft, as a test subject, you have thrown the test. Wow. All right. And you call them out on this, correct? I tried to. Well, right. I tried to. I was hauled in by my bosses, and every meeting, and I described them, a lot of them in the the book, and I have notes of those meetings on my website, I was torn apart. And basically they told me I didn't know what I was talking about. I was fabricating stuff. My notes didn't truly represent what was in the the uh, what had occurred and I was told that I had to change my notes these are these are everyday notes we call it contemporaneous in in when you go to court the sure. lawyer asks me contemporaneous notes they're made continuously one as the day goes by things are added, added and, and you keep you keep notebooks uh, uh, this was all on computer okay it's all computerized because we had done a, started a computer investigation. So it was easy to keep notes because I had a laptop mm-hmm. and something would happen or somebody would say something. I had the laptop with me. I sit down, type it up, add it to my note list, and there it is. Right. It was all in Word, uh, Microsoft Word, and there it was. Well, they read though they demanded those notes and they read them. They had a crew read them, and they were absolutely flabbergasted. The term that they used with what I had recorded, 
and that I would be embarrassed. I had embarrassed the RCMP and I had embarrassed the TSB and that I had no business recording in my notes that which I had recorded. Mm-hmm. I was even I was even accused of suggesting that the plane had blown up when it in fact had burnt up. Okay. There was, there was no explosion, it was a burn. And I was told I had to change my notes. And I was given a piece of paper and my boss signed that piece of paper. My boss was an inspector in the RCMP, a commissioned officer, a police officer, who was dealing with me as a police officer, Mm -hmm. telling me to obstruct justice. Because when a police officer alters his notes, that is an obstruction of justice. Huge no-no. That's right. It is a very serious criminal offense. Yep. He's also obstructing me as a police officer because throughout I was told I couldn't go on tests, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that. I wasn't allowed reports. I ended up getting the information eventually, but at the moment that I wanted it, I wasn't allowed it. I was a policeman. I was not a pilot. I would not understand the report. That's what I was told. Yeah, um, Wow. Uh, Tom Juby is my guest. SwissAir111.ca is his website. The book, Twice as Far, The True Story of uh, SwissAir111. My goodness. Okay, so here you are. Uh, Obviously, the the cornerstone of the investigation was the, the, the fire disproven or the test was thrown your notes they came to you said you got to change your notes why i mean i don't want to get out of step or sink here but what the heck is going on well let's let's back up because we still haven't gotten to the real good part yet <laughs> the doctor in ottawa who did the aes testing he issued he issued a total of three reports. His first report said sabotage as the cause of the fire. And he suggested a method that the magnesium may have been introduced into the top of the plane. I was not allowed to see that report. I had been to every one of the tests. I had handled the exhibits. It was my job to deal with the physical evidence. Mm-hmm. That's physical evidence. I was not allowed to see that report. That report was kept secret. And what happened was they went, the TSB went back to Dr. Brown's supervisor and said, have him tone down his next report. This one is unacceptable. He has to tone down his report. Brown looked at it and well okay fine let's and he put out a second report but in it he says I have magnesium aluminum and iron in those short-circuited beads that I cannot account for I have tested the materials in the aircraft it did not come from there we have tested for seawater transfer it did not come from seawater the only items on the airplane that were 
pure magnesium were the four little rudder pedals that the pilots step on. And they were totally outside of the fire zone. Mm-hmm. There's no iron item in the fire zone, and there was no pure aluminum item in the fire zone. So basically, he's saying, I have this in the beads, I can't account for it, and it's a serious question. TSB looked at that report and said, this is totally unacceptable. One of the directors in Ottawa for the Transportation Safety Board of Canada went and met with Dr. Brown and asked him to read the fine print of the contract. There's a civil contract that the Transportation Safety Board had engaged in with Natural Resources Canada, this group that Dr. Brown is in. Civil contract to provide the testing. If the Transportation Safety Board did not like the results, they would not pay for the testing. You change your report or you don't get paid. Wow. I I can't begin to count the number of criminal code offenses that is. Of course. We had civil suits in the neighborhood of 16 billion that were pending. 16 billion dollars in 1998. We, We had enough to run a criminal investigation. It should have been a criminal investigation from the get-go, and it, it wasn't. Okay? Mm. Let's throw a couple more things your way. Okay. In, in, in When the plane crashed, what, what is typical is the police will go in and interview all of the people who worked on the airplane during its last moments at, while it's at the, the gate. Right. You've got service companies coming in and filling the water bottles, filling the liquor cabinet, filling the food cabinet, filling this, doing that, cleaning company coming in. They found out that the they had a security system. Swiss Air had hired a security guard or a couple of guards to sit on the plane as security. They interviewed the guys and they said, oh, it's common practice for us to go and sit in the toilets and close the door so that we can read a book while the staff are doing their thing on the airplane. Well, in other words, then you don't monitor what they do. Oh, no, we don't see them. We're, we're there on the plane, but we don't see them. So you got all these people running through the airplane, and that's the wrong term, but working on the airplane, and nobody's monitoring them. Okay, they've got a security clearance, but when they went to interview all of those service people, they couldn't find one. One was missing. When When they checked his ID, it was false. To this day, they don't know who that guy was. Okay. He worked for one shift on Swiss Air 111, servicing it, and he was never seen again. Nothing strange Nobody there. Nobody knows who he was. No red flags there at no. all. No, yeah. 
no red flags there because, and, and I tell you, a little later, there was a meeting held in New York between some of our guys, RCMP, and the FBI, the FAA, and the Port Authority, and a few other, a couple of other agencies uh, at the World Trade Center. This was in 1999. Yeah, September of 99. So, so a year after the crash, roughly. A year after and two years before the attacks of two, uh, 9-11. That's right. Okay. And what happened was this was raised in the meeting, and it was suggested uh, this isn't uncommon. We have people working for one or two shifts, and they have false ID, and they leave, and we don't know who they are. <laughs> and I'm thinking it's not uncommon, maybe, but... How common is it to have one of those guys work on a plane that within hours crashes and kills 229 people? Yes. More than 100 of them are U.S. citizens. Aren't you concerned? Now, I wasn't allowed to go to that meeting. I was told that I could not go to that meeting, even though we were going to discuss this Auger electron spectroscopy, the short-circuited wires, what was in the overhead area in the way of fire load, and the term for that is fire load, the amount of flammable material that is capable of burning in a in a fire scene right. is fire load. Uh, we were going to discuss that because I was the only guy in the RCMP who had experience on the planes. I had already been to Zurich three times and had examined the 15 aircraft. I knew more of that plane than all but two TSB members. Only two TSB members had more time on the, in or equal time in the plane as, as I did, and I saw what they saw. In fact, when, when I went over on my third trip, to give you an idea, I went over on my third trip to remove insulation blankets from a plane that was in refit. And I asked my TSB supervisor, are you just going to send somebody with me? And he said, no, I can't. I don't have anybody who knows the plane as well as you. Hmm. All right. And I said, well, you're sending me over alone. He said, well, you know the plane so well. You know all the people over there. And I had worked with all of the guys, and you're going to be able to do it. Well, thanks for the confidence, but, uh, you know, it's going to be a week and a half of uh, I'm working alone, and they're going to be 12, 15-hour days. And that's what it was. But I saw the plane being torn apart. I seized the, the exhibits. I brought them back. I knew what the material was. And I'm not allowed to go to New York to meet with the FBI and the other federal agencies to tell them that we have a problem. Talk about containment. Wow. Okay. That was the thing I was not allowed. That was the reason why I was not allowed to go. There was a BATF, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms member in that meeting. The BATF in 1995 and in about that area of time were working with the Seattle Fire Department 
on a series of very serious fires. They had buildings that were burning in minutes that should have taken hours. And hmm. they realized that there was an accelerant being used. And they didn't know exactly what it was because the temperatures were so high that it melted steel. And it burnt up everything. Everything was lost. Sounds familiar. So what they, they nicknamed it rocket fuel. And in 95, I can remember talking to a fire, local fire chief that I used to work with at fires who had been on a Chicago fire, mark, fire course held in Chicago. And he came back and said, well, this rocket fuel. Well, what are you talking about? Well, we don't know. We don't know the ingredients. Well, it turns out that this rocket fuel is exactly that. It's what's in the shuttle boosters. It's a petroleum product with magnesium powder, aluminum powder, and iron powder. And when they built the shuttle and those rocket boosters, they tried to use just regular fuel and it wouldn't provide the, the heat and wouldn't provide the thrust. They had to throw in magnesium, aluminum, and iron to get that extra boost. It's on the internet. You look up, you look up those, you look up the shuttle solid fuel boosters and what the ingredients are. That's what's in it. And that's what was doing those fires in Seattle, uh, several dozen across the U.S. Uh, the BATF had worked on it, their, their lab, and I'm sure that had I been down with that meeting, I would have been talking with that BATF member, and we might then have come up with what they call today HTA, High Temperature Accelerant, rocket fuel in the fire scene. Okay. Wow. That that's the material that was in the top of that plane, according to Dr. Brown's tests. Magnesium, aluminum, and iron. Connecting the dots. Okay. Perfect. Alright. So what and that meeting to to New York resulted in one of the guys who went down had who had organized the meeting, he spoke to the BATF member are you guys interested in coming up and looking at our reconstruction the BATF members sure no problem we'll do it as a training exercise the BATF are considered probably the best in the world at doing what they do when it comes to fires if you want a fire investigated they have a team they have a Winnebago or when I did the initial read up on them at the time they had a Winnebago set up as a crime lab uh, they had five guys who would go in and they knew their fires they went worldwide hmm. uh, had a herc that they'd run that Winnebago in and it would land them wherever they wanted to go so this guy says yeah we'd love to come up and see and Carl the, our our RCMP member comes back, starts making the arrangements, and goes to this inspector, my boss, and says, uh, I've got the BATF lined up to come up. 
he used some words that shouldn't be repeated on air and said, no way are they coming. I forbid it. Okay. Well, what do you mean? doesn't matter. I forbid it. They're not to come. They will not come. Hmm. And furthermore, I've looked at your notes, and I don't like what's in your notes. I want them changed. And Carl looked at him and said, no, I'm not changing my notes. I refuse to take the request back. Well, the officer did take the request back, but two days later, he called Carl back into another meeting and said, you're out of here. You're gone. You have nothing more to do with Swiss Air. You have nothing more to do with the BATF or any part of the file, and you have nothing more to do with Juby. You do not talk to him. Nice. Yeah, well... What's going on here? I mean... You tell me. Day three, there's no more profiling. Uh, the baggage, uh, or the, the, the um, uh, cargo, it was never determined exactly what was on the plane. There's supposed to have been half a billion dollars worth of diamonds. We don't know if they were there. They could have been stolen at JFK Airport and dummies put on the plane, and there you go. We have no way of knowing. Uh, stolen, and then take the plane down. Uh, there were people on board the plane. This was called the UN shuttle. It was the most expensive flight to Switzerland, to Geneva, from New York. First class seat was $12,000 in 1998. Wow. Twelve grand. There was a prince on board. There were other very high-profile UN people. There were other people on board. When you take a cross-section of the U.S. population, uh, you take 100 people out randomly, you're going to have ex-military people. What were they doing on that flight? Were they a target? We don't know. Who was supposed to be on that flight? You can go on the internet today and see who was supposed to be on that flight. Richard Tomlinson right. was scheduled to be on that flight. He was Lady Diana's bodyguard. He went into hiding immediately upon the crash because MI6 had a contract on him. He felt. Okay. Well, this Carl, pieces. Okay. This Carl, who had set up the meeting with the FA, with the uh, the FBI, he had in 1999, September of 99, two years before 9/11, he knew all about Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda. We had no idea who it was until in a meeting. I had no idea until in a meeting, Carl starts talking about Osama bin Laden and gives us the full meal deal on him and his group. And I'm thinking, and we think there's nobody capable of bringing down this plane? I was told it was a burn that, that caused the crash, a fire. There's never been an incendiary device used to bring down a plane. Well, it turns out there is. There, there's a record of it. And 
there, arson has never been used on a plane. Well, yes, there's been examples of it. In fact, the guy who told me in the TSB had investigated one in Montreal, and he lied to me. You know, I was a police officer, and these guys are lying to me. These guys are obstructing me. Officially, too, in their official capacities. Officially. Yeah. Why? Because I was learning too much. I, I was putting a few pieces together. I was keeping really good notes, and it was going into the notes. But I was busy. I was working 10 hours a day, six to seven days a week. And nobody was paying me the extra time, only occasionally would I get overtime for it. Whereas the TSB members were working seven days a week, 10 hours a, a day, their annual salary doubled working this file. Hmm. So was there incentive for them to keep quiet and keep working? Sure, it was. Uh, but they'll never admit to that, and that's kind of a sideline issue. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be a core issue here. You're, no. you're talking you in, in the deception. Well, yeah. What we had was there were meetings held in Ottawa by senior members of the RCMP right up to the commissioner, and I know they were held because in one of them, I got a phone call to supply information about a, the AES process to my boss who was on a meeting in Ottawa, a business meeting in Ottawa. And the only person he would have been discussing that with was the commissioner of the RCMP. Hmm. Two weeks later, the report is issued and I'm told I'm not to see it. And I'm, I'm in the meeting where I am torn apart and totally made a fool of and besides whatever, they demand my my notes, which they end up reading and then demand that they be changed. Oh. There, there's a, a a series of point of of dots here that can easily be joined, and it backs right up to Ottawa and the senior members in the RCMP. Well, those guys don't act on their own. Right. They're told by politicians what to do. The RCMP is run by a commissioner who is a deputy minister of the government, the federal government. He comes in, the, 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 we have our prime minister, and then he has a cabinet made up of ministers. And under those ministers are deputy ministers. And the commissioner is one of those deputy ministers. And he's answerable to his minister. So who told him? And the minister didn't act on his own. He had to have been told by somebody. Who would have told him? And why? And where did it all originate? I don't know. I don't have those answers. I, I don't. And I don't know if I ever will. I hope Someday somebody will. But you've done a great job in detailing this in your book, Twice as Far. And folks, go to Amazon.com, Twice as Far, uh, the true story of Swiss Air Flight 111, airplane crash investigation, the author, Thomas C. Juby. We have, um, I've got uh, on the air right now, and, and this is so, to me, 
229 people aboard this aircraft. And of course, you know, um, Inspector, you, you look at the, um, the official, uh, the Wikipedia entries about the crash. You look at the encyclopedic type of, uh, well, this is the documentation. They're all wrong or they're all misleading. And you detail the corruption, the deception behind the hangar doors, actually, which is kind of a, a subtitle of your book, but to what end? What do we? I mean, it, it, your best guess, and I know we're kind of short on time right now. So, your best guess. What's this all about, man? I mean, well, you have to ask. You've got a hundred passengers who are uh, uh, carrying U.S. passports. You have another who are dual citizenship, U.S. citizens. Uh, there are another twenty-nine, I think it was, or thirty. You've got one hundred and thirty U.S. citizens on that plane. When Lockerbie occurred, the crash of the Pan Am flight yeah. over Lockerbie, the FBI was over there the next day, and they were in that investigation from the get-go. When um, a couple of other crashes have occurred, we had one earlier in in this country with U.S. soldiers. And there instantly. Mm-hmm. Whenever a plane goes down around the world, when there's a U.S. citizen on board, quite normally, the FBI or some U.S. federal agency is there to at least assist and oversee. What happened here with Swiss Air was I worked for a day with two FBI agents who were fingerprint experts who came into the hangar to see that we were doing a good job in the hangar. Uh, I handed them two U.S. citizen fingerprints to verify that I had made. They looked at them and said, yep, you guys are doing a great job. We're leaving. That was it. He's gone. And, okay, guys, well, all they did was fingerprints. So they're not overseeing the investigation. But nobody else came in. Even when we asked the ATF and they were told, well, sorry, you can't come. Well, wait a minute, we want to come. What? You're U.S. citizens. Right. You've got U.S. citizens who are dead. Uh, We want to see what's going on. We want to see the evidence. Why aren't you saying that? Who... Who told him to back off? I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Why was not? You know, and, and I just want to throw this one out to you. When Dr. Brown put out his report, his first report that said sabotage, that should have been enough to say, hey guys, here we go, we're into it. But no, it didn't happen. In fact, at that time, there was a meeting going on in the hangar with the FAA and the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board of the USA. Mm-hmm. They were in to see what had been done on the, the file. The TSB was giving them the lowdown. Dr. Brown's AES results were never mentioned to them. And I know that. I was not allowed into that meeting 
But one of the FAA members, I spoke with her, and I got into trouble for telling her what Dr. Brown had found. Wow. I got into supreme trouble. And she was lied to and told, no, it's been solved. It's no longer a problem. That meeting occurred nine and one-half months prior to 9-11. Okay. And again, folks, think of that. Think of Swiss Air uh, 111. Think of the investigation that that, uh, my guest right now was a part of and muzzled effectively, officially, in in the context of of, uh, 9-11, in the context of, well, even current events. So, so, so we got about four minutes well, left here. Go ahead. I mean, to, well, current events. Can it be done again? Yeah. What happens if a plane crashes tomorrow, off of wherever in Canada, off of Vancouver? Are we going to run it the same way? Is it? And, and, and yeah. you've got right now. You got North Korea doing their thing. Right. Well, wait a minute. Supposing they start bringing down airplanes. And the first one happens to be from Alaska to Los Angeles and lands on on Vancouver Island. Uh, wow. Wait a minute. The RCMP has an agreement with the TSB that they will handle the investigation. The TSB only does a safety investigation. They do nothing else but safety. Right. Do they, by law, they cannot do a criminal investigation. And they control the investigation. That is wrong. That is terribly wrong. With, with current events, with North Korea, and I, I, I hope, I hope it doesn't happen. But oh yeah, you, know, you got to sit here and, and wonder. Well, you know, you've done a fantastic job explaining this in your book twice as far, folks. I urge everyone to go to Amazon.com and, and get a hold of that book. Uh, the paperback version is, is my favorite. I, I love to be able to hold books. Um, Thomas C. Juby, twice as far, the true story of Swiss Air Flight 111. This happened in 1998. The investigation, as you heard from my guest and hearing from my guest, um, boy, there's nothing normal about this investigation. Um, let me just revisit this while I have a second here. What is your thought? Did someone bring an incendiary device aboard that aircraft? Is that your kind of working theory? And I don't want to. I, I know how you've got a, you know. You've got a, a plane sitting in New York, being serviced by a crew, and various crews. You've got one of those individuals who today we don't know who he is. And it's easy to get a set of coveralls of whatever airline uh, service company. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a set of coveralls for SR Techniques, the service company for for Swiss Air. So they're easy to come by. Sure. So he gets up on his little stool and starts fooling around up in the top. And everybody walks by him and thinks he's a service technician. And he closes up the hatches, walks off, and there it goes. The nature of the device, I'm not into that. I don't know. I have no idea. I deal with them once they go off, not before they go off. And uh, uh, what it was, I have no idea. But 
we have the evidence to indicate there was magnesium, iron, and aluminum. I think I think that's pretty well established, yeah, based on what you said there. And we, you know, you run down through the list, and all the dots connect, and there the, the 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 dots are pointed out in the in the book. And if if the reader thinks otherwise, once they look at everything and look at the website, then please let me know. Come up with some other idea. Please let me know. My website, my address is on the website. And, and has been, I am sure you will come to the same conclusion as me. Uh, yeah. Look, this is a great investigative report uh, via the book. Uh, uh, Mr. Jewey's uh, website is uh, SwissAir111.ca. That's where a lot of information is there. In about 30 seconds or so, what do you hope to accomplish at this point here uh, nearly 20 years after this uh, th- this horrible situation, this horrible crash, and of course, in the shadow of uh, TWA Flight 800, as uh, just to throw additional context in this, what do you hope to accomplish by your revelations with this book? Well, I've been told by the Canadian government that uh, the file will not be reopened, and the Canadian media has taken the attitude that this is old news, mm-hmm. and there's, there's nothing to this, and I'm I'm looking at it, and I'm hoping that you know hopefully people will look at this and say, and, and in your case, your American citizens will say we lost U.S. citizens, and well, after reading the book, I'm not satisfied. I'm just not satisfied. All and, lives matter. 229 people aboard that that are lost. For what reason, you know? That it will happen again. Yeah. We we could, if if we had told the American authorities, and the American authorities had put the link together, because they had other stuff, but Swiss Air being a criminal downing might have thrown it over and said, we got a problem with the airports, and we got to tighten up the airports, and maybe 9-11 wouldn't have occurred. One more piece of the puzzle. Yep. Go ahead. We've had wars since then. We have lost, guys. Mm. Fascinating. One more piece of the puzzle, ladies and gentlemen. I'm I'm just fascinated by Tom Juby, uh, the forensic crash or forensic investigator with the RCMP, retired, uh, just a tremendous investigator. Has written a book twice as far: the true story of Swiss Air Flight 111. This is a piece of a much larger puzzle. I would recommend everyone grab a uh, grab a copy of this book and understand this in the context of events, both in the ni- late 1990s as well as today. I think uh, Thomas C. Juby has done a wonderful job in outlining I- the crash and certainly explaining it to us today. Much more, many more questions than answers, to be yeah. sure. Fantastic, uh, Mr. Juby. I, I just want to say thank you so much for being a being a guest on our program, my program. This deeper investigative look, and we're going to be in touch again because I think this is so important. I think that your work, and you had mentioned uh, real quick, the uh, uh, one of the passengers ostensibly was going to be the bodyguard for Princess Diana, and when you look at the passenger list, or, or maybe not, many more questions than answers. Interesting from the passenger list to the last rivet on that on that aircraft. 
Fantastic. Sir, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. All right. Folks, that'll do it. Doug Hagman, on behalf of the Hagman and Hagman Report, deeper analysis, deeper investigative report on the edge. And, uh, you know, it's because I want to thank everyone. It's because of your support of this platform that we're able to dig deeper into these topics and bring you this information that other platforms won't touch. Till next time, stay safe. God bless. Thank you. Thank you.